Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I almost forgot what even it's called, because it's been like a month almost since we've had class here tonight. Uh, super excited uh, to be back with you guys again tonight. I know it might not seem like it because I'm even later than usual, but that's not because of a lack of excitement. Rather, that's because of the enormously busy day I have had. Um, uh, including a really exciting uh, trip up to Concord, New Hampshire. So today uh, I appeared and testified before the New Hampshire Senate Education Committee uh, talking about Signum University. So uh, that was uh, really fun. We're actually going to link. There's an audio recording uh, of of the session on our bill, which we're going which we're going to link to. Uh, we want to see if we can set. Uh, quietly set a record for most downloads of any particular audio recorded Senate hearing session uh, uh, in uh, recent memory. So we're gonna we're gonna link you to that as soon as that's available. Um, but anyway, no, it was really fun. We had a, I had a great time at the Senate Education Committee today. They don't they don't vote today, so you know, sadly, there's no. Um, uh, like actual results to report from today. Uh, but it was uh, it was great, and many thanks to. Jamie and Sparrow, two of the uh, uh, two of our wonderful Signum folks who also live here in the state of New Hampshire, who also came and testified today, uh, uh, which was uh, which was awesome. So our bill uh, for official state sanctioned uh, 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 degree uh, granting authority um, in the state of New Hampshire is continues its slow grind forward. There's been times in this uh, that I've been saying to myself, I, I wish I had paid better attention in high school social studies because I don't remember the whole sequence of how the bill goes through the state legislature of New Hampshire. Um, but anyway, we are totally... Um, um, we're totally getting there. I see Tarlonials joking that I had a great time in the Senate Education Committee today is a sentence you don't hear every day, which of course may be true. Um, but, um, but anyway, no, it was good. It was good. Uh, today was, uh, today was fun. So, okay. Um, however, yeah, for Thoughtless, needless to say, I, I, I was able to remember the Schoolhouse Rock song, which has helped, but that's federal, right? So there are idiosyncrasies of the New Hampshire process, which, um, you know, which Schoolhouse Rock wasn't able to help me with. So, you know, um, anyhow, so that's... Um, um, yeah, there's not a New Hampshire edition of that song, sadly. Um, so therefore, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's trickier. It's trickier. Um, anyway, so um, <laughs> this is uh, yeah. So they they did ask questions. The life. It was uh, it was it was it was fun. You know, it was clear. Like you know, one of the senators said at the very beginning, and I could tell she was kind of joking because I'd already met with her. Um, but about sort of establishing that we're not a diploma mill, and I did keep a straight face, and I'm like, well, if we're a diploma mill, we're the worst diploma mill ever, <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Like, how many diploma mills set out just to like? Okay, we're going to enable people to get master's degrees in Germanic philology, right? I'm t but people will be printing money, right, if they get this. Holy cow. Um, yeah, so anyway, no, it was, uh, like I said, it was, it was, it was, it, the question was asked in jest, and I, and, and I answered in jest, but it was, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty funny. Um, so, um, so no, this was, uh, this was a, a really great, uh, uh, a really great moment, um, and uh, we, 
Um, uh, so, you know, we'll be moving on from here onto the full floor of the New Hampshire Senate is our next move, assuming that the committee does indeed vote, vote to approve us. Uh, and we'll, uh, and, and we'll move forward. So anyway, so that's a little signum news today and explanation for why I'm like way more scatterbrained than usual. Uh, cause I spent all day around legislators. So, you know, like it's, you know, things happen to you when that happens. Um, and, um, Okay, so um, the uh, the next oh, I see uh, uh, Schreiber. Congratulations for catching up and joining us. That that's excellent. I always like to see first timers who have uh, made the long, slow journey through our uh, uh, through our past uh, uh, episodes here. Uh, catch up and join us here. Um, so. Um, Gilgonthier suggests that we should celebrate by restarting book one and covering it even more slowly yeah well it's not to say that we couldn't we couldn't um, cover the beginning of book one more slowly obviously we really blew it there in retrospect as we've as we've said but we'll get there We'll get there. We'll come back. I, I do. I, I, I think we should end with uh, chapter one, going, going back and doing chapter one again, certainly. Um, anyway, we're totally going to get to chapter two today. However, before I get to there, are two things I still need to do before we start chapter two tonight. So I do not have high aspirations for a large number of slides tonight. Let me just say that from the beginning. Did I say chapter two? I meant book two. Book two, chapter one, book two is what I meant. Um, but before we do that, there are two things that we have to do. First is announcements because there's like a ton of announcements there's so much going on right now even in addition to like today's uh uh, news from the senate so all the announcements exactly druids fire so um First, just a quick reminder about upcoming moots, because we've got one coming up next weekend. Not this weekend, but next weekend. Sunshine moot down in Orlando. There's still room if you want to come. It's going to be a fun, it's going to be one of our smaller moots, which is cool. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to be at some of our, you know, that regional moots are really idiosyncratic and come in lots of different shapes and sizes. We've had a couple really small, uh, uh, you know, really fun ones where we're just kind of a small group getting together. Some have been huge, you know, one uh, text moot was like 120 people um uh but anyway so i really look forward to the opportunity to get to uh to to hang out and get to know you a little bit better it's going to be awesome so if you if you could uh if there's a chance you could still join us you should totally think about doing that it's uh next saturday the 23rd of march uh down near orlando uh go to signumuniversity.org look at our events page there and you can get the registration link to that um so oh cool so bruinier and uh and rowan of gondor and uh and katriana are all coming that is fantastic gonna looking forward to uh, uh, to seeing you guys there. And then, of course, next month on the 13th of April is uh, uh, Nadermoot in uh, Leiden in the Netherlands. Uh, so excited to have our second Europe moot. Uh, we were in the UK last year at London moot, and we're going to be at Nadermoot this year. Uh, I've never been to the Netherlands before, so I'm really looking forward to getting over there for my first time. And that's going to be a lot of fun. That's next month, 13th of April, as I said. And then, of course, the big one, Mythmoot is happening. Mythmoot 6 is happening at the end of June from the 27th through the 30th. That's our big four-day conference, um, our big annual conference. Uh, and that is in the D.C. area. It's in Leesburg, Virginia, which is very uh, near Dulles Airport. Um, strongly recommend Mythmoot. Mythmoot is the, the the regional events. You know, I love the regional events, and it's such a great opportunity to see more people who can't get to Mythmoot. Mythmoot is the big event every year. Um, 
the regionals are kind of like a warm up for for the big one, and it's going to be super exciting. So, um, really pumped for Mythmoot this year, uh, and uh, that's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be pretty cool. So, um, also JJ, you're going to get to come to Mythmoot. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, it's going to be. And Mad Violinist, you're going to be there too. Excellent. That's that's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, it's going to be such a great time. So there's still. So the registration, of course, is open for that. Also, the call for papers, the call for presentations, for proposals, for presentations, I should say, of various kinds, um, are is open. And that's going to be open through, I believe, the end of March. So uh, still a few weeks if you want to present something or suggest a discussion topic or something like that. Um, uh, so it's, uh, and trifle, that's a great idea. Trifle suggesting, um, uh, note to self, uh, by which I mean note to somebody else. Um, we need to put together a myth moot for beginners guide. That's a fantastic idea. Somebody needs to post that on our, uh, segment. Thanks. Thanks, Sharon. I thought you were here. <laughs> you were in fact the one that note was for, uh, but I couldn't remember if you were, I didn't see you on the list right away here. So fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. That's a great idea. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, we're, uh, uh, so that's, that's, that's big. Please, uh, uh, keep that in mind. And I hope that you guys will be able to, uh, will be able to, uh, uh, to, to, to come there. Um, another quick announcement. We're having a, uh, a, a promotion. We're having a sale on our anytime audit tuition for our science fiction one class through the 22nd of, uh, March. You can get our, you can get, um, uh, tuition for our anytime audit, uh, for full access to the course materials for our science fiction one survey class. These, the, our two part science fiction survey class, uh, by Amy Sturgis is just a brilliant, brilliant survey of the development of, uh, science fiction. Um, from you know it's sort of early roots in the 19th century through uh in in through the 20th century just really wonderful immersion in the entire kind of development of uh classic science fiction uh really really great class uh so that that first the first semester of that class science fiction one uh is the one that's on sale great opportunity to uh to pick that up and get that class material if you've never had a chance to uh uh to see that before um so, um, yeah, Kit, I see Kit is talking about Kit is our organizer for our Massachusetts moot. Uh, so yeah, yeah, Kit, we'll be in touch. We'll work on that solidifying the date. I'm still thinking September would be awesome, right? Who doesn't like September in New England? So, um, yeah, so part one goes up through the golden age on uh, science fiction, uh, as Tug McGill is reminding me. Pretty cool. All right. Awesome. Next announcement. So <laughs> this Thursday, which means like the day after tomorrow, um, is like huge day. We've got three different things going on on Thursday. First in the morning at 11 a.m., uh, I'm going to uh, be going down to the Standing Stone Games offices uh, to meet with Chris Pearson and Mike Drought. Again, some of you may have seen uh, previous broadcasts. We've done this, I think, twice now. This will be our third time. Uh, we're having uh, our geek cast, as they call it. We're going to get together and geek out about Lotro and Tolkien and stuff. Um, so Mike Drought and Chris Pearson and I will be down in the offices there uh, hanging out and we'll be broadcasting. I think we're going to be streaming on the official uh, uh, twitch.tv slash Lotro stream. And that's 11 a.m. on Thursday morning. Uh, and then later in the day, we're having one of our thesis uh, theaters. One of our students, Adam Mattern, is going to be presenting uh, his uh, uh, material from his master's, his Signum master's thesis, uh, which uh, covered... 
C.S. Lewis's discarded image and its ma- and its sort of relation to or manifestation in his space trilogy. Uh, really fun topic. And then in the evening at 8.30 p.m., all these times are Eastern time, um, uh, at 8.30 p.m. Eastern is the next edition of the Mythgard Movie Club where they will be talking about uh, Blade Runner, the new Blade Runner. They did the old Blade, Blade Runner last month and they're doing the new one now. Um, so... Uh, so the, all three of those things, Movie Club at 8.30, Thesis Theater at 6, and then the uh, the Geek Cast with me and Chris Pearson and Mike Drought at 11 a.m. on Thursday. And fun, there's more. Then, this weekend, so this weekend in New York City uh, is the, the, the Tolkien Conference and the Symposium at the Morgan uh, Library Tolkien Exhibit. Um, bunch of things going on down there in New York. Because there's a bunch of Tolkien stuff happening in New York this weekend, and I know some of you are probably going to be able to be there, I think. Um, but in any case, because a lot of Tolkien folks are going to be there, we're throwing a, a special, we're, we're holding, it's not exactly a moot. We don't, we're not doing a full moot because every, the Tolkien conference is already happening. But since everyone's going to be around, or since so many people are going to be around anyway, we decided just to hold uh, a get-together, which we're calling a moot-up. Um, so we're having a moot-up that, uh, that weekend. So the Saturday night, the 16th uh, of March, that's this coming Saturday night, uh, we're going to get together at a restaurant in New York just open invitation. Anybody who's there, if any of y'all are in New York or going to be in New York this weekend for the for the conference, come and join us. Um, you can find details on that. There, there's an event on the events page, so go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and you can find uh, the New York get-together uh, page. One important thing I would emphasize about that, there's an RSVP thing. Just send an email to info at signumu.org. If, if you think you can come, um, send us an email just telling us that you can come and how many people people are coming with you because we, you know, it's like we need to inform the venue, like how many people are in fact going to be descending upon them. Uh, so we need some kind of account. So just, just send us an email to let us know, uh, if, um, if you're going to be, if you're going to be coming. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's, if you happen to be in the New York area this weekend, come hang out. I want to meet you. Come, come hang out with us. Uh, we haven't been able to get together a regional moot in New York city. Um, it's the kind of thing that a lot of people suggest and be like, Hey, that's like, should be easy, right? Let's 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 do a, a, a regional moot in New York. And it's like way harder than you would think. Uh, New York is challenging, uh, as a, venue location uh, to find something reasonably priced and, and that you can get into and stuff. There's a lot of people in New York is one of the things you really notice when you visit. So anyhow, um, we haven't been able to do a regional moot there. So we wanted at least to do a get together while a bunch of us are, are down there. Um, so anyhow, that's what's happening this weekend on Saturday night. Whew. Okay. Those are the announcements. Oh, by the way, and also we have registration open for summer courses in our summer semester at Signum, so you should totally look into that too. Uh, so keep an eye out uh, there. You can go to our registration pages, again, signumuniversity.org, uh, to find our summer courses and sign up for those. Okay, lots of things happening over the next few weeks, and I'm only like putting a limit on them. Like, I'm only going to talk about it for, like, what's happening in the next two weeks. Okay, phew. Now, I said we had to do two things before we could start book two, right? One was the announcements, of which there were a ton. The second thing that we have to do is go back and answer some questions. Because you may remember, last time we met, when we were finishing book one, I had a few 
uh, notes and queries from the discussion board that I wanted to talk about. Um, but I put them after the passages because we had two slides left in book one. And I was like, darn it, we're going to finish book one before I go away on vacation. So we... Um, um, uh, so I so I put the two slides first and the notes and queries after and we didn't get to them at all. So I'm going to start with those because I wanted to make sure I addressed those and then we'll uh, uh, we'll we'll seriously we're actually going to start book two tonight. I'm really fairly sure uh, <laughs> that that is in fact going to happen. Um, okay, okay, good. When I said more questions than answers, I was talking about Frodo asking questions and Gandalf not answering at the beginning of book two. And we might even get to that. Okay, so first, uh, Brian Mason uh, makes a great point, uh, thinking he's, uh, again, one of those people who's behind. uh, But when he catches up, he will see that I've answered his question um, from way back thinking about. Remember when we were talking about, like, why doesn't uh, Gaffer Gamgee get influenced by the Black Breath? Uh, And he says, concerning the lack of Black Breath effect on the Gaffer, maybe this is something the Nazgul can control to turn on or off, depending on the circumstances. In intelligence gathering mode, it would be advantageous to turn it off. Really great point. I don't think that's something we really talked about. But of course, to me, that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, right? Um, If you think about the Black Breath as just some kind of, like, unconscious emanation from the Nazgul, right? It's just like, like, it's it's like Nazgul B.O. or something like that, right? It's just like, oh, man, there's a Black Rider in the room, right? The Black Breath is reeking in here. If you think about the Black Breath that way, it does make, especially some of these earlier passages with the gaffer with uh, Farmer Maggot, remember, all of that stuff gets kind of hard to understand uh, how they're not affected by this. Um, if we think of it as a more conscious effect, right, that the Black Breath happens um, when they are actively trying to influence someone, uh, right, in this way, or to, to, to um, well, d- dampen their spirits, if not outright um, dominate them <laughs> Luke says, honey gaffer, don't care. (laughs) That is, of course, the other option, right? That they have the Black Breath on full blast, and both Gaffer Gamgee and Farmer Maggot are like, hey, you know, whatever, back off, man. (laughs) Um, It's possible. It's possible. Um, And as Kuno is pointing out, you know, the hobbits are very resilient, right? I mean, uh, it's possible, but I don't know. I got to say... Although the hobbits are very resilient, and certainly we've, you know, focused on how even thinking from the Witch King's point of view, how frustrated and even a little bit creeped out he must have been about how, um, you know, uh, like bossing these little, you know, soft, dorky little people around it just was not going according to plan, right? Um, uh, but nevertheless... Uh, just simply the idea that it would just kind of roll off them and they wouldn't even notice that it was happening. That's a, like, it's a little OP even for Gaffer Gamgee, frankly. Um, but, um, but yeah, so the idea, as I say, that the black breath is not an unconscious emanation from the black riders, but something which is an actual, uh, sort of targeted effect, right. Is something that, that makes sense to me. The one, um, uh, the one, query I have about that, though, is Mary. Mary in the street at Bree, right? Because remember, Mary is 
comes under the effect of the Black Breath. And yet... Well, okay. At first, they are not aware of him, right? They're not immediately aware of Mary. The Black Rider is not immediately aware of Mary. It is by the end, though. Um, Like when he keels over and and, uh, the black shapes are stooping over him to carry him off, right? Which we talked about at the time. Probably not the Nazgul themselves, but probably... um, uh, uh, Harry and uh, well, maybe not Harry. Uh, uh, Bill Fernie and the um, squint-eyed Southerner, probably. Um, yeah, Penlaw. That is a little bit tempting to think about hobbits as just Nazgul kryptonite, right? But uh, I, I think it can't be quite that extreme. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I guess it is okay. Like it is safe to think of that the Nazgul were aware of Mary. So that, that was the one example I could think of off the top of my head that we've seen of a time when someone was definitively affected by the Black Breath, and yet the Nazgul was not even aware that they were there, um, which would suggest that it is more like an unconscious emanation. But again, I, I, I don't think, upon further reflection, I don't think that that example fits. Um, uh, but um, anyway... So, um, I, I thought this was a this was a, a good observation. Glad to go back to that for just a little while. All right. Uh, so, eye for detail. Um, this was a a, a, lo- a much longer discussion, which uh, I, I I couldn't quote all of. Um, but I wanted to narrow in on this one particular point uh, that he was making. In particular, he was thinking about the Nazgul at the ford and how they got there and um, uh, sort of what that suggested. Um, he was following up, the, it was about the lack of lackeys at the ford. Uh, he was following up an earlier point about when they crossed the road and the suggestion why, how do we know that they weren't using human lookouts, right? Um, back when we were trying to figure out how were they spotting uh, the party crossing the road. And um, he, I believe, I for detail, was in the maybe they do have human scouts. We don't know that they don't, right? It's not, it's not mentioned, but it's not explicitly denied either. And it would make sense having used humans in, like, if they were, you know, like dragging Bill Fernie along with them to make him continue to serve them. Like, you know, that could happen. Um, but anyway, his, one, so one of the things he was saying was that, uh, that seems less likely since we don't see any evidence of anybody else, right? It's just the nine riders at the Ford and presumably had they had any other assets in the area, they would have, uh, you know, allocated those assets to the Ford of Bruin uh, in order to try to, uh, help with this situation. So, um, and that makes a certain amount of sense to me, but anyway, so here's the, uh, uh, excerpt of the long discussion, which with some interesting responses to it as well in the discussion boards, by the way, in case you're one of the people wondering, what are, where are these coming from and how do I get involved in these discussions? Forums.signumuniversity.org is the answer. Um, that's our discussion board for a bunch of different things. So we have, for instance, um, that's where like our film film discussion boards are. If you uh, are interested in participating in the Silmarillion Film Project and our creative process there. Um, and also that's where our discussion boards for Exploring the Lord of the Rings. So look for the Exploring the Lord of the Rings forum there on the, uh, on, on the Signum and Mythgard forums. And then you can uh, navigate through to the questions for Narnian section. And that's where I go uh, every week to look for people's comments and questions. Okay. So... So he says, this brings us back to the question of how did they spot the party on the road? And even here, as it is as still mostly light out, late afternoon, like how do they see them from the Ford? 
The Nazgul would have had to be well off the road for them not to have been spotted. For the Nazgul not to have been spotted. Um, uh, and, oh no, Arden Cran, you don't have to be part of the university to join. You do, you do have to like, create a forum account, but anybody can create a forum account in theory, as long as it's working properly, and I think we just rebooted it, so it should be, I hope. Um, okay, so remember while there were some pine trees, they have been passing through an area with much grass at either side, and they've got uh, Ranger and freaking Gorfindel with them. If the Nazgul were just off the road, I'm pretty sure they would have been spotted, so most likely well off the road in the pine trees. So how do these creatures, mostly blinded in the day, spot the party? Some people like the horse explanation, but I say nay. Okay, so uh, eye for detail again. There's there, there, there's much in this discussion, and I am only just kind of talking on this one point. Tony, that's my first reaction as well. Um, I I I think they can see Frodo, right? So I think that they, they, there might have been some guesswork going on for them originally. So several things I would mention. Number one, these. Um, the riders who are at the ford, like the four riders who come out from the ambush right up ahead, um, I think those have been left there. I don't think that they crept around from behind. Remember the Witch King and four other dudes, uh, 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 grave dudes or black dudes, come up the road from behind them, right? Um, those, I believe, to be the five, same five that were at Weathertop. And also some of the ones which Glorfindel discouraged from remaining at the bridge earlier on, right? But Because you remember that they divided up five stayed with the five which attacked at, at Riven. So all nine were attacking Gandalf at Weathertop. Then the five were there to attack Frodo and company at Weathertop because the other four were chasing Gandalf over Hill and Dale uh, right up through the Etten Moors and around as Gandalf med the, led them away on a merry chase. What's clear, however, given that all nine are back at the ford, is that the four who were following Gandalf came back, and so they're 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 already ahead uh, of uh, the the party, right? Uh, you know, the hobbits and Aragorn and Gorfindel, because they had been off chasing Gandalf and were backtracking towards the ford, um, you know, back down through the wilderness and stuff, and they had apparently arrived there. So I don't think it's a matter of you know uh, Frodo and the hobbits going along the road and the black riders, those black riders having had to pass them. Uh, in order to get up into the front and stay in ambush. So those, I think, again, they're coming back. Um, doubtless, the Witch King's instructions could easily have been, right, chase this wizard down, right? If you catch him, kill him. Great. If you don't catch him, then uh, come back and wait at the fort, right? Your job is to, you're the last, you know, area of defense, right? So you're supposed to stay at the ford. Um, so then the Witch King comes up behind them, remember, out of the Tunnel of Darkness, right? The Black Rider comes out with the four others with him, and he cries out then in his terrible voice. So he signals to the four that are up ahead. I suspect they are pretty far off, but again, I don't think they're traveling, they're flanking them. They're pretty far up the road, and then they're galloping out of their hiding spot towards Frodo and the ford, right? And of course, they must be far enough off. They can't be right next to the ford, right? Or else they'd already be there. They're racing Frodo to the ford. So here's Frodo coming across, and here's the Black Riders coming down, and they don't make it quite there in time. Right. This will all become much clearer when we reenact the flight to the Ford at Mythmoot this year. Um, 
So, uh, so, so that's why I think. So I, I, I don't think that's that's why I don't think there's a question of like, do, are Gorfindel or, or uh, Aragorn going to spot them? Because they're already ahead. They're already in ambush, and they don't have to see in order to come out. Because the Witch King shouts, uh, and they can hear him, uh, and know to come out. And I, and here, Tony, is where I agree with what you were saying before. Once they break out of their ambush and are galloping towards the fort, they can see, Frodo can see them. They can see him, right? Clearly. Um, it is clear that they can see him clearly, right? Um, just as he can see them clearly. I don't think there's any, there's any, there doesn't seem to me to be any real question about that. So, just as Frodo no longer needs to be wearing the ring in order to see their faces beneath their hoods, I have every reason to think that they don't need any help from their horses to spot Frodo. Um, I suspect that, I don't know, thinking about what that would look like from the um, Black Rider's point of view is a little bit interesting, right? Um, would they just see Frodo? I, would they see As- Asphaloth? Right, would he be visible to them because he's an elf horse? Can they see elf horses? Does Asphaloth exist also on the other side? Is, 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 is he has shining light or maybe a white flame, um, a flash of white flame uh, uh, to their eyes? Yeah, I'm not really sure, right? Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, so those two, to me, those two things seem to be enough to explain their uh, motions uh, at the ford. Um, <laughs> Mike is saying it must be a, a pleasant recollection of their early days. I haven't actually seen anything in centuries, right? Well, presumably they've seen other wraithified things. Um, Mike, you know, here's my question. I wonder what Gollum looks like to the ringwraiths, right? Is he like a vague shadowy shape, a slightly more defined shadowy shape, right? He's not wearing the ring. He's not in the wraith world. He's he's not faded. He's, you know, thin and tough still, as Gandalf says. And yet, right, he's been dominated by the... He's been so marked in his spirit, so twisted by the ring. Um, you gotta think there's some kind of residue, right? Uh, what would what would he look like? Would he look like... I mean, he's not... I mean, Gorfindel is different. We know Gorfindel's in a different category, right? Um, would he look like... I don't know. I don't know. Would, uh, would Gollum look like... I don't know, like the infrared outline that, like, the Predator can see from the Predator film? Right? I don't know. Like, is that what it would be? I don't know. Um, but yeah, Tony, exactly. He's met them, right? They will have seen him before. Uh, and we're never told this, but I feel like I need to know what Colin looks like to the rates. Um, so, uh, anyhow, okay. But now I'm just uh, simply digressing, which is irresponsible. Final note and query before we actually begin book two tonight. Um, uh, Saxo Runesinger, uh, really wonderful point. This is building off a point that uh, Saxo has made before. Um, uh, which is uh, in response to um, uh, how, you know, we've talked about the, the Witch King being in a really bad position, right, and how uh, sort of desperate he would be. And Saxo Rudensinger before was sort of cautioning, you know, it wouldn't actually be that hard. Like, if they follow, if he, they track, if he gets to Rivendell, that's not a disaster for the Ringwraiths, right? They could still go into surveillance mode and... Um, 
and all that kind of things. So anyway, so he says, I want to challenge some comments made in the last discussion. There was some discussion of the desperation of the Lord of the Nazgul as he and his comrades attempted to grab Frodo before he crossed the border into Rivendell. I know that the Ford of Bruin is also known as the Ford of Rivendell and that Elrond controls the river, but keep in mind that there is still more than 20 miles between the liminal zone of the Ford and the Valley of Imladris. So I might argue that seeing that Frodo will be safe from pursuit once he crosses the river might reflect more about the barrier of the flowing river than it does about the boundary of Rivendell slash ferry. That, so just to pause on that one for a second, that's a good point, and we've sort of talked about that, how like Frodo doesn't think that he's safe, and he's probably wrong, but he's not totally wrong, right? Um, uh, anyway, so um, uh, there's... I, I see that, but I still think it's fairly clear that the boundary of the 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 you know the the ford of rivendell is a significant boundary i mean i i agree there's a difference between the ford of bruinen and the edge of imladris right once you cross the river it's not you haven't arrived yet there is indeed uh 20 miles of hard going and you might not even find the right valley right as we remember gandalf struggled with that even gandalf just, just, just struggled with that in the hobbit you'll recall um so um Okay, so that's um, that's true, and yet, as is made evident by events, right, that boundary is also a real boundary, right? The power of Elrond extends to that point. Think of this. Think of this statement: the quite flat and rather impressive statement made in the Hobbit: "Evil things do not come into that valley," right? Um, Where's the boundary of that, right? Do evil things not come as far? Like, how how close to the valley exactly are evil things permitted to come? Uh, is this the boundary, right, across which evil things are disinvited, right, uh, from Imudris? Um The fact is, um, even... Uh, you can say, oh, well, this was exceptional, right? Um... You know, like that, like they they would have. I mean, he was this close. The Witch King was right, um, but except you know, the flood happened to come and wipe him away. But if the flood hadn't come right then, then you know they would have made it into the valley. Well, yeah, right. Which is as much as to say, if the magical defenses of the valley hadn't kicked in, then they would have made it into the valley. <laughs> which seems to me also potentially another way of saying you know, that they can't go into the valley, right? So, again, I do think... I'm not saying that I think the river's an absolute barrier or anything like that, but the Flood does demonstrate that Elrond's powers extend. You know, his power and influence does extend to that point. So, is it within Imladris? You know, might there be some kind of gray area? Sure. But for this reason, everything that I see happening in the text convinces me that the crossing of the river is a significant moment, and events prove it to be, in fact, significant. Frodo doesn't feel safe, but in fact, he is safe after he crosses, because the Black Riders are going to be washed away. That's, in fact, what's going to happen. Um, but nevertheless, it's still it's still a good point to remember about the 20 miles. Anyway, so he's going to keep going, uh, and this was the uh, uh, the part I thought was even more important. 
Uh, he says, as I mentioned in a previous post about the strategy of the Witch King, even the safe arrival of the Ring at Rivendell is not necessarily disaster for Sauron and his forces. Yes, of course, they would like to get the Ring sooner versus later, but they can afford to wait a day, a year, or an age to get it back in their possession. Even if a powerful claimant of the Ring can be found in Rivendell, which it could, easily, right? The forces necessary to win the physical war against Mordor are not available. Keep in mind, we are less than a hundred miles from the Orc Holds in the Misty Mountains, uh, probably a similar distance from Mount Gundabad, and there may be some isolated Orc Holds in the ruins of Angmar. All of these resources would be available to the Witch King if he remains in surveillance mode. So in my mind, it's a stretch to say that he is desperate to stop Frodo at the Ford. Highly motivated? Certainly. But he's by no means out of options, or so it would seem. I agree. Um, I do think that um, uh, this is true. Um, this is true. I would. This is true, but I would put a couple caveats next to it. Okay. Um, so it is true that the Witch King, having pursued them to the edges of Rivendell, uh, could set up. A you know the nine riders in various positions circling Rivendell uh, to make sure that nobody could get out with the ring without Sauron knowing where they were going and why right and or he could have put you know six or seven of them around and sent the others off to bring in armies of orcs agreed theoretically that's possible right in which case it would have been hard the thing uh, Saxo that I can't help but remember is Elrond's comment. Um, which we haven't got to yet, right? Elrond's comment in the council about Sauron coming himself, right? That Rivendell could not withstand uh, Sauron coming himself. That, of course, is another option, right? For one of the Ringwraiths to head back to Mordor and say, okay, boss, good news and bad news, right? Bad news is we didn't get the ring, but the good news is we've got it pinned down, right? Uh, uh, More bad news, it's in Imladris, Right, which is kind of a good guy's stronghold, and there are lots of people there who could like totally claim the ring. But why don't you go and mop the floor with them and get your ring back? Right, because we know just where it is. Um, okay. Um, yes, that's possible too. But see here, this is where I and mad violinist. That's exactly the direction that I was headed with this. Imagine yourself as the ringwraiths delivering that particular message, right? What, um, what are you thinking, right? What's your, I think you're not happy to deliver that message, right? You don't want to tell the boss that you've lost the ring, or rather that you've lost the ring into Imladris, where apart from Galadriel, like literally every non-Galadriel potential ring wielder, um, if, if Sauron were making, you know, a list of all of the people in Middle-earth, um, yeah, Luke is asking what's the Sauron equivalent of a Vader force choke, right? Yeah, something like that, exactly. Um, if, if Sauron were to make a list of every single person in Middle-earth who could wield the ring against him, right? I mean, everybody except Galadriel on that list is in Imladris right now, right? I mean, maybe Denethor... I guess Saruman, in theory, right? Trifle thinks that Celeborn could wield the ring, which is adorable, 
right? I have my doubts. Personally, I think Kilborn's not assertive enough to wield the ring. Uh, Kierden, okay, Kierden. All right, so Kierden, Goadriel, maybe Denethor, uh, and probably Saruman. Okay, so there are four. Four people in all of Middle-earth, but there's more than that there in Imladris, right? There's Elrond, who's got to be at or near the very top of his list. There's Gandalf, who's got to be at or near the very top of his list. There's Aragorn, whom he doesn't know exists yet, but if he did, would be high on top of the list, right? There's Gorfindel, right? So, I mean, it's... Um, uh, and, you know, and, and and presumably there are other elf lords. I mean, I'm guessing that uh, Gildor and Glorian could probably wield. I mean, he's a Noldo of no insignificant stat- stature, right? Um, so that is to say there are probably other members of Elrond's uh, household um, who could do it. Tarloniel suggests Arwen. Absolutely. Why not? Right? Um, so anyway, um, my the point is... I would be willing to concede that the ring arriving at Imladris isn't um, isn't a disaster in the sense of like game over, like they have completely failed and they just have to go back to Mordor. And you're right, Cecilia, they they are going to go back to Mordor and report uh, that it's there, and they don't even have it pinned down anymore, right? But but yeah, they do have to kind of slink back and do exactly that. Um, uh, but, um, anyway, so, uh, again, that can't have been a fun conversation. Um, I don't think that Sauron would view it as anything. I mean, he does not want a new ring lord to arise. Um, when we hear Gandalf talking about that in The Return of the King, right, when Sauron is kind of making contingencies, like he's looking for a time of strife, when the, you know, he thinks that Aragorn is the new Ringlord because of Aragorn's, um, uh, uh, you know, boldness and in looking into the Palantir and all that kind of thing, um, that doesn't mean he's happy about it. That doesn't mean everything's going according to plan, right? Um, Sauron has some moves he can still make. He's not going to give up. He's not going to run away from Aragorn, even though he believes or suspects that um, um, Aragorn could potentially wield the ring, right? Um, But, um, so so he's... he's, um, Sauron still is going to act and still could conceivably win. But it's not like this is what Sauron wants, right? Um, so, Mad Violinist, back to the comment you made, the Mad Violinist was saying that the, that the thinking that says, like, well, you know, maybe they'll take it up, maybe they won't take it up. Sauron putting himself into the minds of his opponents and imagining what they would do when the Ring of Power comes into their possessions, Gandalf does say that's a weak point of his, right? He doesn't get the way that they look at things. So, he is going to assume. He's got to be assuming. Um, and this is interesting to think about because I think often we don't think about this this way. Once the Nazgul get back there and report this to him, he's got to be thinking that, right? He's got to be thinking that. He's got to be thinking that um, this is their move, right? The ring is in Imladris. Great. The ring is in the hands of like half of the, at least half of the people I would most not want it to be in the hands of, Right. Great. So, um, which one of them is going to take it up? That's got to be his only question, right? 
Um, one of them is going to be taking it and is going to be coming against me. Um, so that's why his reaction when the Nazgul come back is to start making preparations, quick preparations for war, right? Um, so remember, when Aragorn shows himself to Sauron in the Palantir, um, it's not, that's not the moment when Sauron is like, oh, somebody must have taken up the ring, right? That's the moment where he's like, oh my gosh, it's the guy who took up the ring, right? Sauron has to be thinking somebody's taken up the ring long since, right? Somebody in Rivendell took up the ring. Um, and now he's got to figure out who is it? Who is it who took up the ring? What are they up to, right? What's their move? And how can I best counter it? I know how I can best counter it by squashing everybody. I'll just squash everybody, right? I'll move in the north. I'll move down here. I'll move down here. And let's just, uh, let's just uh, uh, chard earth this whole thing starting now uh, so that whatever the new ring lord tries to do, um, you know, uh, they won't be able to. That's got to be what Sauron is thinking from this point. Um, uh, and uh, Lilith asks, at what point would they decide, would he decide they are instead trying to destroy it? The moment when Frodo puts on the ring on, uh, 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 it, at the cracks of doom. That's the moment. That's the moment. Until that moment, it never occurs to Sauron that they're going to try to destroy the ring. Um, so, yes, when Frodo is holding the ring at the edge of the cracks of doom uh, and puts it and claims it for his own and puts it on his finger is the moment when Sauron uh, decides that they're instead trying to destroy it. Until that point, um, he is operating under the premise that uh, they are... Um, um, that they're, they're obviously going to use it against him. I mean, it's a complete no-brainer. It's the only thing to do. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, Bricktails, I see, was saying exactly the same thing. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, see now, but Fourth Dauntless, thinking about what Gandalf said in Gondor, that Sauron would look for a period of strife as the new Ring Lord emerges, um, he's pretty far away. He doesn't know that hasn't happened, right? I mean, you know, he's sitting here thinking, okay, they've got it in Imladris, right? And yeah, they're probably fighting like cats and dogs over that thing right now. And maybe Sauron is um, uh, is sitting there thinking like, oh man, like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall for that, right? I wish I could be an Imladris with my popcorn to watch, like, Gandalf and Elrond rip each other's throats out to decide who gets the Ring of Power. Much fun as that would be, nevertheless, one of them is going to come out with it. So until they sort that out, right, that's going to be really up in the air because those namby-pamby good guys are all, like, helping each other and everything. And so, like, no one is properly asserting dominion over anybody else. So that's going to get ugly and whatever. But So I've got a little bit of time, and I'm going to seize that time uh, to go in and, like, charge on uh, everybody and destroy stuff. Um, and Tony, he's going to decide to upgrade the Nazgul as well. That is going to be another choice that he makes here. Um, so, absolutely. So, Galandar asks, why wouldn't Sauron just besiege Rivendell? Well, he does. I mean, he's gonna. Um, but, see, he's gonna have reason to believe that the ring is out of Rivendell, right? He, 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 he could do that, but he can't do that in a day. And this, again, coming back to what Saxo uh, uh, Runesinger is saying here, um, he, uh, uh, there are armies, like he has some military assets 
not too far away from Imladris. But this is why the discomfiture of the ringwraiths at the Ford of Bruinen is so important, right? Um, because with all of the Nazgul flushed down the river, there's nobody left to lead that army. There's nobody left to mobilize it. Heck, there's nobody left to take his message to them. He can't telepathically communicate. They don't have a palantir. The orcs, I mean, right? He can't, like, uh, you know, like, go to, like, Mount Gundabad on his favorites list and just, like, call him up, right? And be like, hey, can y'all besiege Imladris? That'd be great. Um, he ha- He would have to get somebody there, even to deploy those armies that are closer up. But, like, getting towards Rivendell, he's, he's working on it, right? I'm going to go straight to Rivendell, right through Gondor and Rohan and Lothlorien and, and Dale and everything, right? Um, it will, we, we, will, um, we will close in around uh, the Ringlord and prevent them from getting to the front, basically, right? Um, so, um, uh, anyway... Yeah, so, um, so, so yeah, I think he's like besieging Rivendell is basically the plan. Remember, he did that before. Uh, that's old, right? Uh, he besieged Rivendell in the Second Age. Uh, so, you know, he knows just how, right? It didn't pan out so well the first time, but, uh, uh, but he does know how to do that. But again, he's to do that, he's got to get his armies into Eriador, um, and he doesn't, he doesn't have the capability for that. And so you'll notice by the time it comes to it, by the time the war begins, he will have had enough reports, right? There will have been enough rumors of what's going on for him to say, all right, something's on the move, right? The ring is not in Rivendell anymore. So Operation Let's Besiege Rivendell is going to go by the wayside. Um, and I know that it seems a little crazy that they stay in Rivendell for months just like waiting to see what the scouts report, right? As we'll get to later on in Chapter 1. Later on, I say, as if we've begun it. Um, but um, but they do. I mean, they do. Middle-earth is big. Uh, and it takes even Sauron a while to get around and to get word around to things. You can't forget about the size and perhaps maybe even easier for Lotro players to forget about the, how big Middle-earth is and how long it takes to get from one end to the next. Um, they do actually have quite a bit of time. Um, okay. Um, and Brandon, that's a really interesting point um, that... Uh, he says he suspects suspects the fact that the period of strife Sauron is looking for hasn't happened yet might make Sauron kind of nervous. Like, when are they going to start fighting? Um, it's vital to his plans to know who's winning uh, uh, the fight that he's expecting. And if he isn't seeing it, someone might be winning before he realizes who it is. Yeah, maybe one person rose up and took down everybody else like that. And so they're already all settled. Maybe I don't have as much time as I think I did. I better start stomping sooner rather than later. Yeah, you've got to think that... Because, again, it's not going to make him question his premises, right? He's not going to look at the lack of strife and be like, maybe I was wrong. Maybe they just all love each other, right? Maybe they all agreed that no one's going to have the ring and we're just going to sit around and still be friends. This is not on Sauron's radar screen. So, yeah, Brandon, um, strife is what is going to happen. If it's not happening, maybe that's a bad sign, right? Again, maybe the, the new ring lord just took control from day one. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, great thoughts, questions. You can see why I wanted to come back to these uh, from last time. But I have an idea. Are you ready for this? I have an idea. Let's start book two. Woohoo! Frodo woke and found himself lying in bed. At first he thought that he had slept late, after a long, unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory. Or perhaps he had been ill? But the ceiling looked strange. It was flat, and it had dark beams richly carved. He lay a little while longer, looking at patches of sunlight on the wall, and listening to the sound of a waterfall. "'Where am I, and what is the time?' he said aloud to the ceiling. "'In the house of Elrond, and it is ten o'clock in the morning,' said a voice." It is the morning of October the 24th, if you want to know. Gandalf, cried Frodo, sitting up. There was the old wizard, sitting in a chair by the open window. Yes, he said, I am here, and you are lucky to be here too, after all the absurd things you have done since leaving home, since you left home. Frodo lay down again. He felt too comfortable and peaceful to argue, and in any case, he did not think he would get the better of an argument. He was fully awake now and the memory of his long journey was returning. The disastrous shortcut through the old forest, the accident at the prancing pony, and his madness in putting on the ring in the dell under Weathertop. While he was thinking of all these things, and trying in vain to bring his memory down to his arriving in Rivendell, there was a long silence, broken only by the soft puffs of Gandalf's pipe as he blew white smoke rings out the window. Okay. Um... And Eternal Cow, if you're thinking of Gandalf's tone, right, the tone in which Gandalf uh, uh, addresses Frodo right away, I agree, it's very Shire-like, right? This is hobbitry. Um, This is exactly the kind of tone of voice in which we expect somebody, like, you can tell that they're close friends because of how they insult each other, right? Um, And that does seem to be the way that... um, um, uh, the way that that Gandalf is responding here, right? Um, that Gandalf, after being late, after not seeing him for months, after you know all of the the mystery of his absence and the tension caused and everyone's fear and uncertainty, um, that uh, the first thing he says after telling him the time and the date. Uh, is you are lucky to be here too after all the absurd things you have done since you have left home is uh, is pretty cool, right? Um, yeah. Um, and Gilgonthir, I agree. The uh, description of the ceiling is interesting, right? Um, I think this is a fascinating beginning. Um, notice what the emphasis is, right? Um, on the one hand, it begins with the sense of the familiar. Here's Frodo lying in bed. Um, if we think about, um, uh, if we think about, I don't like to use these terms because these were Hobbit terms, not Fellowship of the Ring terms exactly. But if we think back for a second um, to the terminology I emphasized in uh, my Hobbit book, right about the the Took and Baggins thing. Right again, Took versus Baggins is no longer the major theme in the Fellowship of the Ring, as we talked about before, a long time ago now, a couple years back. Um, but nevertheless, um, notice the way that this kind of frames it. Right when he wakes up, he's lying in bed, and his first thought is that he's home. Right, that he's at Bag End 
in his own bed and that he's woken up and it was a dream. So his very first frame is a sort of Baggins-ish frame, right? This this brief, uh, I almost said glimpse, that's not quite the right word, uh, this brief picture that Frodo has in his mind that everything that happened must have been a dream, right? And that no adventure has actually occurred to him, right? Um, and, or perhaps he'd been ill, right? Something, Something's happened. I don't feel quite right, but uh, that might explain it, right? The weird dreams and stuff that I've had, right? Um, so, at first he thought he had slept, like, but then notice... Um, the, the, it's the description of the ceiling, right? Um, but the ceiling looked strange. It was flat, and it had dark beams richly carved. He lay there a little while longer, looking at the patches of sunlight on the wall. So he's aware that he's in a different room. So notice the the, the kind of interesting, um, the kind of interesting thing here. He immediately observes that the ceiling... So his first thought is, I'm in Bag End. The second thing he sees is, I'm not in Bag End. The ceiling is is not rounded, it's flat, right? Um, And you'd think that would kind of be a big deal, right? Like, I am not in a Hobbit structure at all, right? Not only am I not in Bag End, I am not uh, in any kind of Hobbit building. Um, I'm in a completely alien kind of structure. And, oh, by the way... There are these dark beams richly carved beneath the the ceiling, right? Um, so it's a nice place, right? Nice attention to detail. Um, so it's a pleasant place, and he's in a nice soft bed and feeling very comfortable. And yet the thing that strikes me about the description is that he, he doesn't start, Right? He doesn't respond. I mean, that whole, like, waking up and being groggy and thinking that he's still back at home and been ill, maybe, or or been dreaming, is not strange, right? And yet, um, the realization, I am not in a hobbit hole at all, doesn't startle him, right? He doesn't jump up and be like, wait, where am I? Um, He just, what does he do? He looks at the patches of sunlight on the wall, which is normal. Right? I mean, sunlight on the wall, that's a thing that he would see at home in Bag End, right? So he's like, huh, strange ceiling. Not in a hobbit hole. Ah, patches of sunlight on the wall. So, I'm in bed. Familiar. Comfortable. The ceiling is weird. It's not hobbitish, right? Strange. Different, right? Ah, patches of very slow moving sunlight on the wall. Comfortable. Familiar. Right? Sound of a waterfall. Strange. Different. Right? I'm not used to waking up where there's a waterfall right nearby. So, um, it's like he is uh, processing what he sees sort of slowly and in gentle stages. Right? But again, it strikes me that he is not kind of freaked out by it. Right? Um, at any point. And then Tony, yeah, exactly. He um, um, uh, he starts talking to himself out loud, right? Where am I, and what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. Um, now, I don't think 
that he said that aloud to the ceiling because he expects to be answered by the ceiling, right? I think he's just talking to himself. He seems to assume that he's alone in the room, right? Um, and so he, he starts talking out loud. Where am I and what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. Um, Johannes, I agree that when you wake up in a hotel and forget for a moment where you are, you don't panic. First of all, I've seen people panic in that kind of situation. But, um, yes, true, You even if you don't panic, though, you've been in hotels before, right? Um, so when I say you don't panic, like, and when I'm saying it's remarkable he doesn't panic... Um, I think I'm in Bag End. No, I'm not in Bag End. I'm in some completely foreign place, which is not... Again, it's the it's the noticing the difference from Hobbit architecture that seems to me the most important thing there in the description of the beams and the flat ceiling, right? Um, uh, I think, um, uh, Johannes, I would... Um, I would suggest... I, I would turn it upside down, right? That is, I would say, if I woke up and looked up and the ceiling above me was rounded, right? You know, was, was curved, tube-like, right? Um, I'd be a little freaked out, right? Not just because I didn't remember where I was, but I'm like, whoa, I'm in some completely different... kind. This is not a normal building. Not only is it not a building... I, not only is it a building I don't remember getting to, right? Even, and not only is it not my house, right, and my bedroom, um, but uh, it's this is like alien architecture, right? I am somewhere the like of which I've never been before, right? Um, again, not only a place like a like a like a strange room in a hotel, but again, like you've been to hotel rooms. So even if you don't remember and you look around and you're like, I'm in a weird, weird you know, strange. Hotel room, where am I? What's going on? Right? I can know you don't panic because you've been to hotel rooms before, right? Um, uh, but um, anyway, several people are saying that, of course, he should be able to smell the elves. So, uh, you know, that's presumably comforting. Um, Eternal Cow and um, uh, Zephan are wondering if, um, uh, if there is some kind of calming spiritual aura about the place as part of the healing process from Elrond, you know, is he, is he still, it, at least in a sort of psychological or spiritual way, slightly sedated, right? Um, maybe, maybe, um, that would, um, um, that would, that would make sense. Um, and I agree, Kit. He's comfortable, so he's not in the hold of the bad guys. And I forget somebody was earlier um, uh, uh, contrasting this to when he woke up by himself in the barrow, right? And certainly, this is a very different experience from waking up in the barrow, right? No question. Um, Fourth Thoughtless says, Where am I? Seems a normal question to ask yourself because maybe you could figure it out. What is the time? Is just odd. Well, it is for Thoughtless, except this seems to be what all hobbits ask as soon as they wake up, right? Um, that's, like, when you watch this, uh, when we see a hobbit groggily awaking from sleep, 
the very first question they are dominantly likely to ask is what is the time? Yes, Trifle, that's exactly what Sam asks when he wakes up at the field of Cormallon. It's exactly what Sam asks when he goes to sleep at the dawnless day, right? And he wakes up and, 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 and it's dark already. Um, uh, it's that what is the time is, is this what, didn't somebody ask that in three's company already? Um, it's, it's, that's, I, I, it's not what I would ask either, probably, but um, but that's uh, we we have lots of evidence to say that, and several of you are also pointing out that the question is probably ultimately mule related. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, uh, I uh, that seems that seems likely, and although they do, as Tony reminds us, actually have clocks. Remember, Bilbo has a clock on his mantelpiece. Um, uh, now, Lalife, thank you for repeating that comment because I, I wanted to come back to that, but it was a long time ago now. So, Lalife is interested in the phrase uh, "the unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory." Uh, she's interested in that phrase, like he's coming into consciousness and also feeling the effects of being rescued from the wraith world. Yes, his body has not only been brought back from close to death, right, but his spirit has been brought back from, you know, the frontiers of the Wraith world. Um, this, is a, this is a big deal. So, the long, unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory uh, is interesting. So, hovering on the edge of memory just suggests, I mean, literally he's talking about his memory, right? So, it just means he can't quite remember it. Um, it's hovering there on the edge, so we can kind of tell it's there. Right? He can tell that it is an unpleasant dream. He doesn't remember anything about it, but he knows it was unpleasant. Right? So, again, it's, he can kind of tell that it's there, but he doesn't, it doesn't provide him any details. He, there's no narrative attached to it uh, in his memory. Um, but, nevertheless, Lalife, I agree. Um, to me, that phrase is especially interesting when we think back to all of that discussion we had at the end of chapter 11, at the end of book one, about boundaries, right? Borders. The edge of his memory seems like an important boundary also, right? Um, and one, it, that is a frontier that he is only slowly crossing in the life. I think that you're right to, uh, to find that an important kind of suggestion, right? Um, he is crossing a frontier again. Um, remember the last thing we saw was it felt like he was being drowned along with his enemies, right? Um, and one of the things we were pointing out there is the significance of them being grouped together, right? Um, him and his, em- his enemies, it's like he has crossed over to the other side of that boundary, right? So having he crossed the river first, but he, he sounds like he does cross or nearly cross uh, that, ba- that other boundary, right? That spiritual boundary um, that he was so close to the edge of before as well. Um, so again, he's come back, right? He's crossed back around that. And so this, this vision, this, uh, uh, image, right? Of the long, unpleasant dream hovering on the edge of memory. Um, his memory can't access the stuff of what, there's a lot that he can't access in his memory, right? Uh, He's still trying to return to that. But I think that seems to be a kind of, um, I don't know, like synecdoche for how his, he is, 
returning in spirit and 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 wandering back in in uh in spirit um yeah anyway um i think it's interesting and is the memory loss a consequence of the healing well, no. I mean, some of it is just because he was unconscious when it happened. Like, he doesn't remember coming to Rivendell because he didn't. He was unconscious then, so why would he remember it? So uh, some some of the holes in his memory are because he has been comatose for a while now, and he has no memories from that time. Um, uh, so, yeah, so some of that is very, very simply explained in that way. Um but some of it does seem to be because his whole his recollection of the experience that he was in it's it's fuzzy now because he was fuzzy right because he was crossing over um yeah yeah um yeah okay good um and yes Arden Crown some of it he doesn't want to remember either okay so he wakes up and he asks, where am I and what is the time? Right. So he asks his hobbity questions and um, receives, I would have to assume unexpectedly uh, to himself, an answer in the house of Elrond. And it is 10 o'clock in the morning, said a voice. It is the morning of October the 24th, if you want to know. Uh, so he is given an answer by the Shire clock and the Shire calendar uh, and an answer which, of course, started with the excellent piece of good news that he's gotten to the place that he was heading, right, in the house of Elrond. Um, here I am tempted to recall the discussion we had about Glorfindel's identification, right, um, that, about how he dwells uh, in Rivendell, right? Um, uh, you are in the house of Elrond, Right? It doesn't say you're in Rivendell. Um, uh, let's go to Rivendell. When we get to Rivendell, that's been the primary sort of force and reality of the Hobbits' lives for you know for for quite a while now as they've been traveling, um, you know, and through all of this very tense time. But that's not what Gandalf says, right? What he emphasizes is, um, you are in the house of Elrond. Right, you are under, and therefore by extension, you are under Aragorn. Aragorn. You are under Elrond's authority. Right, uh, you are under his power. You are sheltered by the power of Elrond, um, and that's uh, and that's a big deal. Yeah, uh, uh, Brolio says it's a wonder that his thoughts don't turn to Sam uh, immediately upon learning this. They do pretty quickly. Uh, and of course, his very first reaction is, "Oh my gosh, it's Gandalf!" Right? Uh, but as soon as he gets past that, he does inquire after Sam. So he is very quick uh, to think about Sam. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so Lilith, yeah, Gandalf is being pretty gentle with him here at the very beginning, right? He just answers his questions uh, and answers his questions in a pretty reassuring way, right? First answer: You're safe, right? You're not only in Rivendell, you're in the house of Elrond, right? Uh, nothing can get you here. And it's 10 o'clock in the morning on, the tw- on October the 24th, if you want to know, right? I'm, g- I'm going to give you a bonus. I'm not only going to tell you where you are and what's the time. I'm going to give you the date, too, which you didn't even ask for yet, right? Um, uh, yeah, and then Frodo sits up. Gandalf 
there was the old wizard sitting in a chair by the open window. The um, description of Gandalf as the old wizard is interesting, right? Remember Frodo observing at the beginning of chapter two when he sees Gandalf for the first time in like nine years? Um, He says to Gandalf that Gandalf looks just the same as ever, but he's lying. He's being polite. Gandalf doesn't look just the same as ever. Um, Frodo privately thinks that Gandalf looks older, right? More worn with care. Um, uh, And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting that he's described as the old wizard. Um, Some of that might be a sort of a phrase of comfort and familiarity, right? Now there's the old wizard, right? Um, That is to say... It's like everything is right with the world again, right? There's the old wizard sitting by the window, right? Just It's just like it could have been back in the day had he been sick back in Bag End and woken up to find his friend sitting, on the, uh, sitting next to the bed, right? Uh, no big deal. Um, but, um, but also, again, I can't help but recollect that memory of, or that observation, that noticing by Frodo of uh, Gandalf's... Um, aged appearance uh, as he's sitting in a chair by the window here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Hawthorne, yeah, he doesn't get called Old Wizard in The Hobbit, but he does get called Old Man. In fact, he's introduced as a little old man. Um, But again, it's hard to it's hard to carry over Hawthorne too much from uh, um, from The Hobbit. Uh, with the descriptions of Gandalf, because Gandalf's character has grown and changed a very great deal uh, since The Hobbit. So he's not really, in Tolkien's mind, the same character. Um, That is, the character of Gandalf, the old wizard now, is not really um, anywhere in in a similar place to where he was in 1930-ish, you know, when Tolkien sat down and wrote the first drafts of Chapter 1. Um... (laughs) <laughs> Mike's pointing out that Elrond grudgingly allows Gandalf to smoke indoors, but only next to an open window. Uh, yeah, it does kind of look like that, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to make a... Uh, I was going to make a uh, uh, an asthma reference, but I won't. Um, okay, um, yeah, Zeph and I agree. The overall atmosphere of this is this sort of wake-up-in-heaven motif, right? Um, bad things are gone. The feared dead are sitting here comfortably. There's lots of light. Yeah, he never does ask, right? Like, wait, am I, am I dead, right? Is this, uh, is this, uh, you know, did you die and that's why you didn't come and now I'm dead and I'm in heaven too? Yeah, there's, um... That doesn't seem to be thrown out here as like a viable interpretive option. Like if we do think that, we're not really in, uh, permitted to think that for very long. But Zeph and I, I, I don't want to. Uh, that, that doesn't mean I disagree with you. Um, there's almost a, that atmosphere. And remember, um, uh, Tolkien's going to play on that. You know, something like that at the Field of Cormallan, right? You know, Sam, when Sam sees, uh, you know, resurrected Gandalf again, you know, he's going to ask, is, you know, is everything sad going to come untrue? Um, you know, Sam is 
got to be kind of wondering until he sees Frodo's maimed hand. Um, am I in the happy place where all sad things come untrue? Right. Um, now I'm not going to get too distracted into the question of do hobbits believe in an afterlife or something like that, because it doesn't matter. The point is we readers are familiar with this concept, right? So I, I, I think if, um, it's not that, um, it's not that Tolkien is suggesting that Frodo might suspect that, uh, exactly that. Like I am in the heavenly afterlife, right? But rather it, 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 well, Zephan, what I like to say with things like this, it smells like that, right? It has, it has some of that atmosphere to it. Um, which can itself therefore be almost, especially given what we saw of Frodo, we ended book one on a cliffhanger, right? Frodo collapsed and seemed to be like, did he drown? Was he taken? Like, is he gone over into the, uh, into the shadow world permanently? Is he going to wake up dead or is he going to wake up a wraith right in book two? Um, and he could, this could be right. He could, this could be him waking up dead right at the beginning of book two. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I do think that that's, um, there is a sense in which that's so. Yeah, exactly. Tolkien, uh, as Zephan says, is is intentionally playing on the reader's expectation, uh, and then of course he doesn't fulfill it. It's not, in fact, heaven. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I, that 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 makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, yeah, and I agree, James. There's a, still a lot of still a lot of book in your right hand, right, as you're reading to suspect that he's quite dead yet. But um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, good. Okay. Um, yep. Not going to, um, the question about hobbits in the afterlife, we'll consider that at another time. That would be a good Grifflet question to talk about during my Grifflet stream. Let's chat about hobbits in the afterlife, uh, during Grifflet this Friday. That would be good. Um, okay. Um, the old wizard. That's just, that's all the further we got there. Um, and you're lucky to be here, too, after all the absurd things you have done since you left home. And we've talked, of course, about the tone of that, which is not insulting, but reassuring, right? Um, not only is his friend there, his friend is there and acting normal, right? That's how friends act. That's how Gandalf treats him. Um, uh, Gandalf is back and nothing is nothing has changed, right? Nothing bad has happened. Um, uh, and so, yeah, in its way, Tony, I, I think that the, the, um, the joking here, the hobbitry here is, is part of the kind of domesticity of the scene. Right. Uh, definitely. Um, uh, Frodo lay down again. He felt too comfortable and peaceful to argue. And in any case, he did not think he would get the better of an argument, right? As he thinks about it, he's like, absurd. Well, it's a fair cop. You got me banged to rights. I did. I have done plenty of absurd things uh, since then. Um, yeah. Yeah, Tony, it is interesting to think how exactly would you do Gandalf if you were an actor portraying Gandalf delivering that line, right? How would you do it? Um you know, deadpan or with a wry smile. I think, I, I think, I think deadpan, right. Is how I would do that too. Um, um, yeah, I think that would be the tone, but look at his review 
of things, right? As he can't, as the memory begins to return, right? As he begins to go back again in his mind over the journey that he has been through on the way there, um, look what he thinks about. The disastrous shortcut through the old forest. The accident in the prancing pony. And his madness in putting on the ring under the dell in Weathertop. Now, there are a few things that um, those three incidents have in common, right? Um, One, of course, is he put on the ring in all three places, right? Um, So there is something... um, um, uh, There is something... That that is an interesting trend, right? Um, they do all occur before he got stabbed, JJ. Which you know, there's a lot of the journey post stabbing. So I, I I wonder if the things before he was wounded are still more clear in his memory. That seems quite likely. Um, the ring is likely uh, on his mind, and so the fact that the ring is is similar there. But the other thing that I would point out. All three of those things were things that he himself did. Not things that happened to him, right? Choices that he made, right? He chose to take the shortcut through the old forest. That was his initiative, right? Um, That was his proposal, and the others went along with it, right? Mary, remember, was like, it sounds pretty desperate, but I think we could pull it off, right? Fatty Bolger was like, you must be insane. Um, That was his leadership, that led them into the old forest. The shortcut through the old forest. The accident at the prancing, prancing pony was on him, right? As Aragorn emphasized at the time, right? Um, what did you do that for? Um, and even though it was an accident, even though he didn't intend it, he did put his foot in it, or shall I say your finger, right? Um, and then, of course, his madness and putting on the ring in the Dell under Weathertop, for which, you know, afterwards, uh, he was rebuking himself for weakness of will. Um, so, so anyway, I, you know, I do think that he is thinking specifically about the absurd things you have done. Again, not the incredible things or the unfortunate things or the terrifying things that have happened to you, but rather think back over the things that you have done, things that you are responsible to. Ask yourself if those things are a little absurd. And I think you will agree with Gandalf that they kind of are. Um, And Zephan, you're right about those first two incidents having quotation marks, right? The hobbits did rationalize them, which is true in some ways, right? Um, it was a shortcut. It wasn't a shortcut. It was a disastrous long cut through the forest, right? Um, yes, it was an accident. Except I wonder, as Strider says, right? It was an accident from Frodo's point of view, but probably not uh, from other points of view, right? Um, uh, and But you're right, Zeph, and the madness... Um, in putting on the ring in the Dell under Weathertop is something that he confronted right away, right? And I agree, uh, Brolio, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? So looking back on it, he, he can now clearly see that those were disastrous decisions, even in some cases, perhaps absurd decisions. Um, but I agree, it's a little hard um, on uh, under the circumstances, um, given how much he knew and didn't know, right? Um, uh, yes, um, 
And yeah, uh, Green Great Dragon says, well, if you'd made my party, Gandalf, yeah. And I'm not sure that we're not going to get a little bit of a response like that from Frodo, right? He is going to ask Gandalf what kept him. Um, and I don't know that, that we necessarily should be reading that as a direct response to Gandalf's ribbing here about the absurd things that he did. Um, but I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that that's not an element in this, right? Yeah, boy, I sure I sure haven't covered myself with glory right on my way here. But speaking of which, where have you been, Gandalf? Right? You know, I, I'm not sure that there isn't at least a little bit uh, uh, of an element of that there. Um, yeah, and now Fourth Dauntless and Bricktails, I rather agree with you. Um, uh, the old forest looked disastrous at the time, um, but yeah, it does kind of work out okay, right? Um, it's not bad. Um, uh, it was it was not bad to have done. Um, it still wasn't a great choice. It was still, in retrospect, an absurd decision, um, which they were only saved from twice by good fortune, right? Um, uh, by chance, if chance you call it, as Bombadil would say. Um, so... Uh, yeah, in retrospect, still a bad decision, though in retrospect, it, it also kind of panned out in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, Hawthorne is saying the same thing, that it did turn out to be a kind of uh, uh, catastrophic mistake, right? Sort of, well, not a Felix culpa exactly, but a fortunate absurdity, right, on Frodo's part. Um, yeah, definitely. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tora Marthen says, Who among us has not eventually been glad of a mistake? Oh, yeah, goodness, all the time that happens to me. So, um, notice where this passage ends, kind of like where it began. Um, a long silence, broken only by the soft puffs of Gandalf's pipe as he blew white smoke rings out of the window, and they may or may not be going and floating off over a hill somewhere, right? Um, the reminder of chapter one of The Hobbit and the smoke rings that Bilbo was blowing uh, outside, and of course then the smoke rings that Gandalf blows in the parlor at Bag End. Um, uh, smoke rings, on the one hand, are marvelous. In The Hobbit, it's clear that smoke rings are associated with calm relaxation, comfort, right? Bilbo having a second breakfast on the lawn and blowing smoke rings afterwards. And yet, um, when the smoke, you know, uh, when Gandalf sends his little predatory smoke rings zipping through the larger smoke rings that Thorin is blowing, right? And then they all come and cluster about his head in this strangely glowing little, uh, little aura, right? Um, that's also weird. Um, so, you know, Gandalf's kind of, you know, his magical ability to, to blow smoke rings and influence smoke rings, um, is part of his wizardly charm. And yet even that in retrospect, in context is familiar. It's still a bag end thing, right? Um, and we're not in Bilbo's world anymore where anything sorcerous and, and, uh, and out of the way uncanny is strange and objectionable, Right? That's not the world that Frodo has grown up in. He has grown up in a world in which an old wizard sitting next to an open window 
and blowing smoke rings out that window into a beautiful, sunny, peaceful day is a picture of domesticity, right? Not a picture of the marvelous. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, yeah, it does. Exactly, Tony. It is It is like being back in Bag End. Um, oh, yeah, Fourth Dauntless is saying, we often see Gandalf smoking and thinking, and I have to wonder what he's pondering here. Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if one of the things that Gandalf is thinking about is how much to tell Frodo, uh, right, as he uh, uh, is doubtless going to be Frodo is doubtless going to be asking a whole bunch of questions. Um, and Galandar, I agree. Gandalf doesn't make any move towards asking Frodo any questions about how he is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, we don't get that from Gandalf here, uh, which is itself kind of interesting. His abstraction here from Frodo um, is uh, is interesting. Yeah, Tony says, whatever... Gandalf is thinking about might be a three-pipe problem. Yeah, yeah, it's a Sherlock Holmes quote. Um, uh, that's how Sherlock Holmes measures his uh, his cases in pipes, how many pipes he has to smoke before he figures out the answer. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, I don't know what Gandalf is thinking about, whether it's something like, what do I tell him, right? Where, where do we... Uh, because it's clear that that's not a no-brainer for Gandalf, right? Um, what he says to him and how he says it is part of the treatment of Frodo. Remember, his wound was not just physical. It wasn't even merely psychological, right? It was spiritual, primarily a spiritual wound, a physical wound as well, um, but a f- spiritual wound as well. So... He's awake. That's great. What's his spiritual recovery like? And how can that best proceed? Um, remember the whole question which I was alluding to in my title about hints and versus information, right? Um, fewer hints, more information, I was suggesting to Gandalf. Um, uh, the vocabulary for that I took from Frodo's conversation with Gildor, right? I can't imagine what information would be more terrifying than your hints and warnings. As Gandalf is going to be trying to kind of dance around, telling Frodo stuff, going back over the narrative, explaining, filling these holes in his memory, um, he is raising Frodo's curiosity, and Frodo is going to say something fairly similar, right? Um, You kept from me about the ringwraiths because you were afraid I would be terrified, right? Gildor wouldn't tell me who the ringwraiths are uh, because he didn't want to overwhelm me with fear, Give me some information now. Don't think you're going to, like, tire me too out, too much by giving me information. But again, I don't think this is just a physical treatment regimen question, right? I think we have to remember that this was a spiritual wound uh, from the beginning. Yeah, uh, Green Great Dragon, we're going to see him hedge a lot in this conversation with Frodo. So we have a couple more slides of Gandalf um, trying to avoid conversation with Frodo. Not only does he not ask him how he is, right? He seems to avoid conversation with Frodo, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, Okay. Um, Yeah. A good Mike suggests that his, uh, you know, Gandalf ribbing Frodo, 
right, um, about his uh, the absurd things that he's done, um, is an interesting opening move. He starts with normal, right, to see how Frodo responds. Is Frodo feeling normal? Is Frodo back to normal? Um, is is there still going to be a gray haze in front of his eyes, right? Has he gone so far over the boundary that he can't come back to the world of sunlight and smoke rings and friends and um, things like that? Um, that needs to be one of the things that that has to be one of the things that Gandalf is intending to assess in this conversation. So I agree with you, Mike. I do think that that it that does lay an interesting emphasis on his friendly um, and uh, sort of bantering opening, right? Again, let's let's try normal, as you say, and Brolio exactly. Gandalf is assessing here. Um, Tony thinks it's interesting that Gandalf doesn't physically touch or embrace Frodo. And that's interesting. Folks in, in Tolkien are rarely demonstrative in that way. Physical signs of affection are not super common. Um, I mean, the hug count in The Lord of the Rings is fairly small, right? It's fairly low. Hug count. Um, uh, how many times do people get hugged or embraced in The Lord of the Rings? I don't think it's a very high number. Um, yeah, Rococo says it's a British thing. May well be, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Sam might be an exception. Yeah, maybe. At least in some cases. Um, yeah. Um, uh, did Aragorn and Gorfindel embrace? No, I don't think so. Aragorn comes running down. Um, yeah, Green Great Dragon, no, they don't make out like medieval families did. No, no, they don't. Um, uh, no, I don't think Aragorn and Gorfindel touched, did they? Is there physical contact between Aragorn and Gorfindel? I don't think so. Um, yeah, um, physical signs of affection are unusual. Um, that just seems to be the kind of social baseline there. Yeah, Broly, I didn't think so. I didn't, I don't, I didn't think they did touch. Um, they excitedly moved towards each other and then stood there and talked, right? Um, uh, Pontine says the word embrace is only used five times in the Lord of the Rings, and I bet sometimes it's metaphorical, right? Rather than a literal embrace between people. Um, yeah, yeah. Aragorn and Halberd embrace. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Yep. Um, yep, not unknown. Not unknown. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. That's a, a side note, uh, but that's interesting. Um, okay. Going to stop there. We did a slide. I'm exhausted. Right. Oh, man. Like we talked about. If you count each one, right, we did six paragraphs of book two. I'm bushed after all that discussion. Right. I mean, with progress like this, we're going to 
you know, we're going to be at the, <laughs> we're going to be at the falls of Raros before you know it. Um, whew, ah. Okay. Oh, so the five embracings are actual physical actions. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, uh, who were they? Who were they? Halberd and okay, now I'm all curious. So somebody, uh, somebody, somebody, somebody put me out of my curiosity here. Aragorn and Halberd embrace, right? Uh, who else? Who else embraces? Aragorn and Aemir. They embrace at the Battle of Pelennor Field, right? That, that's that's true. That happens. Okay. All right. Um, Aragorn and Aemir. Aragorn and Halberd. So Aragorn's kind of huggy, right? Gandalf him. Gandalf. Does Gandalf actually embrace Butterbur? Does he threaten to? He says he did. Okay, okay, he, he, he says he did. Okay, so there's an actual hug of Butterbur by Gandalf in report, right? Okay, yeah, okay, right. Uh, I embraced the old fellow, right? There it is, there it is. Okay, yeah. Um, Mary, Eowyn, and Aemir embrace. And Faramir embraces Frodo and Sam. That's really interesting. I bet Faramir kissed him. I bet there was smooching involved in that one. I almost have to think so. In that kind of... Because that's almost ceremonial, right? Faramir is embracing Frodo and Sam, not out of a, an excess of spontaneous emotion, right? But as a formal, like, departing um, uh, uh, gesture, right? Um, yeah, kisses their foreheads also. That's exactly what I would expect as, as, as part of that embrace. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um... In the manner of his people. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Mubot is attempting to prevent Hawthorne from posting links to the text. Um, okay. Gandalf embraces Butterbur. Faramir embraces Frodo and Sam. Aragorn embraces Halbred. Aragorn embraces Aemir. And Mary and Eowyn um, embrace. When do Mary and Eowyn embrace? In what context? When's the Mary Eowyn hug? Many partings. Oh, so it's a farewell hug. Okay. Okay. After he gets the horn. Yeah. Great. Um, uh, yes, and you're right. Uh, sorry, Marie. Was that Marie? Um, or Cecilia? Uh, that um, uh, Aragorn kisses Mary um, uh, on, the, on the brow in the Houses of Healing, too. So we get some more smooching going on there. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Two spontaneous meetings, right? Halbered and Aemir, right? The, with Aragorn with both of them. Um, and um, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Druid's Fire says that Fred Savage would not accuse this of being a kissing book. Yeah, no. No, I don't think so. But there is more kissing than embracing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Veronica is... Uh, People kissed on the lips in medieval times. Like there was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Kissing was much more normal. Um, there was, there was. Um, medieval people were way less. You would smooch your family, like your parents, on the lips. Um, uh, like little dainty pecks on the cheek are kind of a modern thing. Like you kissed somebody, you're kissing their lips. That's what a kiss is. Um, so yeah, no, that's that's true. That happened much more in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, okay. Here we are getting <clears throat> distracted again. Um, but that's okay. I'm glad I found out the five embraces because that was, that was, that was bothering me. Um, but now it is time for the field trip. Thanks, everybody, on Twitter for joining us today. We had a great population all the way through. Uh, often we get a bunch of people at the beginning, and then the, the Twitter population kind of peters out by the end. Uh, but we had a, a whole bunch of Twitter people with excellent stamina tonight. So uh, thanks for um, thanks for for joining us uh, tonight and for sticking around. Um, feel free to come join us. We're going to do the field trip now. Um, we're going to go back to Rivendell and look around in Rivendell in Lotro. So we'll we'll look at the adaptation there. Um, um, and uh, so come and join us twitch.tv slash signumu if you want to keep watching and thanks to you guys in the town appreciated having you there and we're going to go on the field trip so goodbye to the twitter folks and here we are okay um, okay now go stop being afk there stop being afk okay there we are all right so such an invite i'm accepting there invite right okay I gotta stand near you, because so we're oh, gonna go to Rivendell. I'm over here. That's not you. Hello. I just approached the wrong you. Hobbit. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. So you have to Good admit, job, like you, you've got the same hair and the same height, right? I just like forgot which cosmetics you were wearing. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I know, and I'm um, not on Maven tonight, so. Yeah. Okay. So um, so we're gonna go to Rivendell. So before Maven and I depart. Uh, we're we're gonna we're we're gonna meet up in Rivendell and do the field trip there, right? So I'll meet people. Um, let's actually meet by the the bridge at the beginning, right? So when you come down the path to the bridge, let's meet there. Okay. Um, we normally land, I think, if you have a port. Yeah, yeah, land. yeah. Not not by the. So okay. So oh, where are we? So it tells me we are on the Honor server. We're on the legendary server tonight, um, which is why my character Narnian here is level five <laughs> because I've not, I don't have any time to play the legendary server. So, uh, I'm still here in level five. So, uh, that's why, uh, Maven is going to port me there with a hunter port, uh, because I would have no option, but to run, I don't even have a horse. <laughs> I don't even have the riding <laughs> skill on this server yet. And we did that last time. So we did that last time. Down. We ran all the way okay. to Rivendell, and it took most of the time. And I don't want to do it again. I want to be in Rivendell and look around Rivendell. Um, so if you can, if you can stable master there, go ahead and stable master there, and I'll, I'll wait for you uh, by the bridge there at the um, the front overlook. So I just did it. So make sure you Got grab. It. You say gotcha. yes. Okay, good. Here we All go. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent.
For everybody else, you can swift travel from uh, Southbury to Oscar Ruth and then from there to Rivendell without any unusual unlocks, as long as you've been to Oscar Ruth. Right. And you can get anywhere in Middle Earth with Mithril, of course. <laughs> there might be more people uh, than usual tonight because they announced today that the Moria expansion is coming to the legendary servers uh, on Thursday. Right. So uh, people, so I just backing up a little bit, my favorite element of the last homely house in the distance is how the entry seems, looks like it's framed by books held open, right? Books that are, uh, you know, open with their spines up, both the big one down here and the little one up on top. Um, I think that's adorable. I think that is simply adorable. As I recall, I think that the the big one used to be more visible than this. Before they did the cosmetic makeover of Rivendell, I have a vague memory. Because I'm not sure I would think that that looked like a book now. But it definitely did, I think, more so back in the old days. But the one on top, the, the smaller one up on top, definitely uh, still suggests that same thing of a book sitting open there. Um, sitting open or or the one I see well like, like steepled yeah upside down yeah, yeah exactly like your bibliophiles like, exactly like you like you've been holding fainting. it and you're and you've and you're you know you're holding your place like this right I, um, I put a I was in Starbucks one time during one of my class I was you know while I was taking one of the courses at Signum, I was in Starbucks and I was doing some paper writing and I took a picture of my table and I had my books laid open like that oh my gosh my fellow students were just all over me. Like, don't do that <laughs> don't to your books. Don't do that to your books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, but anyway, so I just, th- th- that initial association between the last homely house and, and reading, and not just reading, right? But like reading and casually interrupting reading, which feels even more sort of restful, right? You know, like you've, like you're reading and you just put your book down to take a nap, right? Right, you know, because right. you your your eyes got heavy and you just like put the book down because you couldn't even find your bookmark and then you just went to sleep, right? Um, uh, there's something uh, particularly cozy, um, not just scholarly, right? Not just you know erudite and uh, learned and and lore mastery, but. Um, uh, okay, so there's got to be a big mug of tea. Right, exactly. Yeah, that. something like that. That's exactly, yeah. Uh, exactly the, the spirit of the thing, right? Um, Gosh, we could go in and actually go visit the bed where Frodo woke up, you know, contextually speaking for tonight's uh, very true. one slide. Yes, I think we should head up. That we, yes, sir, we can reenact the moment, right, of uh, <laughs> that we talked about here today. Um so, by the way, I, this seems to be, I would have to think, what this bridge always makes me think of. I mean, apart from the number of times I've fallen off it. I was going to say, um, falling off it, yeah. Besides that, the other thing that it makes me think of um, is this has to be the bridge that Bilbo and the dwarves were crossing over, mm-hmm. that the elves were saying, don't. Uh, dip your beard in the foam, father. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and I know the long beards have long beards, but that would be. We should reenact that. <laughs> Do a little. The Tralalalali arrival now. Yeah. Which means, 
if this is the 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 bridge that they were supposed to not, uh, uh, you know, that Bilbo felt a little bit uneasy about crossing, which I've always assumed that it was because it because of the way it has no like railings, right? No guardrails. Um, no no OSHA. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, but that suggests, therefore, that the tralalalali business was happening somewhere over here. So I've got to think that if they're coming down into the valley here, the tralalalali had to be uh, down over in this direction, right? Like I'm thinking, was it when he got to the bridge? I'm trying to remember, or would they have been doing it as he's walking down this? I this think it was before here. they got to the bridge. Like they got. So to it'd when, be like you know when he's walking down this path here, right? Like yeah, and they're he's hearing the tralalalali around here, and they're baking bannocks probably down like mm. over there, right down past the red circle. Is kind of what I'm <laughs> what I'm thinking, right? Um, Gosh, Loto should have put an oven down there. They missed it. they missed an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, bannock oven. Totally. Um, If I may interrupt for just a moment. um, Maven, you are very quiet. Can you boost your volume, please? I can try. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Fourth Dauntless is wondering if the unrailed bridge is a defensive measure. Well, it's certainly proven an able defense against me on many occasions. Um, I don't know if it would deter orcs or not, but... um, I mean, none of this looks particularly built for defense. I mean, if you really wanted a defensive bridge, you would make one that was easy to destroy, um, which they don't have. Uh, You could throw down the log over there. Remember, we crossed the log bridge last time. Um, I suppose this is theoretically destructible, but it doesn't look... It's a stone bridge, which suggests it's not exceptionally destructible. Um, But... uh, <clears throat> did did Tolkien ever really make any reference to the elves working in stone? Yeah. Yeah, the elves work in stone. I mean, I know, you know, the dwarves are big on stone, but of course the elves mm-hmm. would have had to. I mean, they could sure. be hiring dwarves every time they needed to build something. Yeah. Now, Trifle thinks you could collapse that thing fairly easily. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's just an arched span, so, you know, they probably have the means with which to take it out. See, here's another bridge, so you could say, well, maybe they came across here, and this is the don't dip your beard in the foam father bridge. But I don't think so, because this one has guardrails, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and I think it's too close to the house. Right. Not to mention, it was on their approach. That's not to say that I've never, like, fallen off of that bridge, because I have. <laughs> uh, but... Um, <laughs> Um, but it does at Haven't least we all. have, uh, yeah, exactly. It does at least have, we um, could go visit Glorfindel. We, we can, but the game you know. particle effects are much foamier at the other bridge. The one without guardrails as well. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But you know, we're going to be he in Rivendell a bunch of times. So we I don't are, know. We will have time go. to visit Glorfindel. Yeah. Let's go visit Frodo's bed. Let's go to Frodo's bed. <laughs> I agree. Let's be topical. Go visit Frodo's beds. We're going to go into the last homely house here. Which actually, we don't want to just rush into. We have we been in here before? Nope, not on okay. our field trips. So we don't want to rush. The big statue, which has got to be Elbereth, <laughs> right? That's what I'm. Th- I've always wondered, but it's got to be Elbereth, I would think. It's, it's kind of El- a stylized thing, you know. Right. Not like the other. The other statues are 
actual people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the other statues that we've seen, like the ones that we see here. Yeah, like right? here. Um, right. Yeah, and this is this is the Luthien, right? The Luthien right. dancing. Um, and we figured out who this guy is. Which guy? This one over here beside Luthien. Oh, th- this is oh, Gilgalad. Are you over here? Gilgalad, okay. Yeah, with oh, the spear right, and the, the, the yep. countless stars yep, yep, of yep. Heaven's Field mirrored in his silver shield. Right, right, um, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I agree. The fact that this there's no physical form does suggest not only is she much taller, but, yeah, su- suggesting of... It's just a, a more abstract depiction, right? We get her face. Um, I'm interested in the fact that we... This might sound like a silly observation. We don't see her ears. Now, I'm not saying I expect <laughs> the statue of Elberath to have, like, big, like, poppy-out ears, right? You know, um, uh, I'm not saying that. But she's wimpled, right? She's got yep. a wimple covering her ears like her ears are actually covered um mm-hmm. and of course the ears are like the thing with albareth right and instead what we get is all this hair which is it fun it's actually interesting yeah um but she doesn't i mean if you looked at her face and the wimple and the hair you know um if you just looked at this and you said, "What does this stat- does this statue say?" I hear everyone who calls out, or does it say, "I'm not listening"? Right? I I, I would think it looks a little bit more. I'm not listening. Right? Um, yeah. But um, let's see. Yeah, her statue really... should be should be leaning forward with her hand cupped over one ear. Right. Right. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> what was that again? <laughs> Somebody dropped the e bomb. I'm can't here. Hear you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and what's around okay, just floral patterns and stuff the purple flames are interesting um, uh, uh, Fufu Cuddly Poops was saying that it's you know <laughs> strange that the purple flames are the same type used by the enemy in some places we do see purple flames in some places as we see blue flames and green flames in other places as well but the one thing that all such flames have in common is that they are magical, uncanny flames, right? They mm-hmm. are indicators that something out of the ordinary is happening. Something, these are not run of, this is not a run-of-the-mill fire that we are seeing. Um, I don't think it necessarily means evil. It just means wondrous, magical, strange fire. You know, actually, it is kind of interesting because the purple is sort of color-coded in Lotro to mean fear. So when you're fighting, you know, the purple, yes. if you get purple... Yes. It's fear, which is just, in, that's just interesting. I'm sure it wasn't, I mean, I have a hard time believing there was any conscious thought like, oh, maybe we shouldn't use purple or, right. because it means, you know. Right. But, um, you know, in its way, I'm not sure that's inappropriate, right? Like that is, you yeah. know, evil things are, should be afraid to afraid. be here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, Boomful, I'm not sure I ever did look up at the sky and realize that this was an open courtyard. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't pretend I didn't notice that there were trees there. So, like, arguably, I should have looked up and noticed. That. I think I saw the lamps and I never panned past the lamps. Because when you're looking here and looking up at Elberth, you've got the, 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 the lamps and then you've got the ceiling right there behind. 
but yeah, if you, I think uh, I had always just assumed that that was, you know, blue paint on the ceiling. But you're right. Yesterday, I got a, I got a, um, uh, quest to come out and talk to so and so in the courtyard, and I'm like, where's the courtyard? Right. I w- actually, I went out the front door, and the, I'm like, well, this the can't front be right. Door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this and then porch, I came back in, and I'm like, courtyard. right, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I guess this is the courtyard. So yeah, it was the same way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, yes, yeah, so it's just about strange and magical fire. Um, yeah. I, I, it, it, I mean, obviously, it's all about context, right? If you saw these same purple flames burning, um, you know, in a, 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 you know, chimney filled with bones, you know, you'd like a wraith factory, it, you would conclude that it was evil fire, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is. But it is, but it does draw attention to the fact these are not just like little votive candles right, right. around the feet of Elbereth. This is th- these are these are magical flames. These are probably like eternal flame type flames too. Exactly. And then of course as uh, O'Malley is pointing out the the, the lamps are purple too, right? Oh um, right, true. Which true. recalls yeah. the Feanorian lamps, right? Yeah. Uh, from the Silmarillion, which were blue, not purple, um, but that's okay because we don't have rights to the Silmarillion anyway. Um, it, you yeah. know, I got a on a tangent here. This is the first time I've actually noticed this traitor right here is actually a human and not an elf. Huh. Which I guess would kind of make sense if you think maybe for like commerce and goods, right? That there would be human merchants, but I just had never noticed that before. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I never never thought of that either. Most of the other ones are oh, elves, aren't they? I don't know if... Yeah. I mean, like, the healer over here, which I right. guess would make sense as an elf, but everybody right. else I've ever met here is elf. I, if anybody here... I don't know if anybody can hear the sound of breaking bones, but it's not uncommon for people to jump off the, the yeah, top off, story off the where, yeah. where Elrond's library is as a shortcut. It's still probably faster <laughs> to limp for a little bit than to wind right. your way down. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um... I keep trying to jump into one of the trees, but I, I, I never succeeded doing that. Yes. Oh, and Hawthorne, answer to your question, Landreval is where I normally am. That's the free server that, like, is the home base of the Mythgard uh, kin and everything. So there's a lot of stuff going on on Landreval for people who are looking for a very active free server. That's where uh, all, most of my... Yeah, there's a Mythgard kinship there, characters too. Characters actually Actually, it's yeah. the original Mythgard kinship, so... yeah. Um, okay, cool. All right, so Elberth. Oh yes, and we're t- uh, the uh, the like smoke coming up from the flames is cool. It looks very incense-y, right? And so you know, I can't help but remember the New Testament passages about the um, uh, the incense being the prayers of the saints, uh, you know, rising up to heaven from the Book of Revelation. So it certainly does have a sort of shrine feel to it right here. Um, and so having... Maybe that's what they meant when they said it smells like elves. It was this <laughs> right? it's, just, it's just this uh, Elberth incense. And if you hang out in this courtyard, yeah, you're going to get, you know, you're going to smell like it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. So wait, uh, Frodo's room... Which is it's over here. It's, it's down here on the ground floor. I'm right? assuming we can. I'm assuming everybody can get into it. I don't think it's hard. Well, oh my goodness! I will soon find out. No, no, it's not. Okay. All right. And we have Frodo's actually in here, and this we assume is the bed he was waking up in. Right. 
though it looks like they took the sheets off. Oh, ironically, it's a canopy, so we couldn't see the ceiling from here anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, there we go. <laughs> Siberus is uh, reenacting the lying there on the go. bed. Right? That's right. Oh, yeah, it's interesting that they put a canopy on it so that he can't look at the ceiling. But Oops. it is on the side where the waterfall is, so that's good. So what that's true. you could hear it. That's true. The waterfall would be right out this window. That is, right. that is, that is, that is true. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. And we do have, that's exactly how I pictured Frodo waking up We do. in that exactly that pose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Especially with the, with the war hammer. Um, we do have, we do have dark beams richly carved in the ceiling, right? I wonder the ceiling is not flat. I guess it's flat in the middle, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. vaulted a little bit, but, uh, um, now this is Bilbo's room. Okay, all right, Luke. That's true. Um, but that's this true. is it where is we Bilbo's meet. Room. This, yeah, that's it's, true. It's labeled. We don't Bilbo's actually get room. a Frodo room. Frodo's room, do we? Yeah, and of course we but don't know exactly here. where he was, uh, where he was recuperating. Right, he could have been recuperating in a, uh, you know. Well, yeah, there is. A, he could have I been. I don't know if we can get to it. I mean, after that high elf, there is the you know place where the high elves wake up. The, right, kind of like the hospital. Right, I, I, yeah, like the high elf dormitory. Somewhere. Right, for people yeah, who yeah. are taking a mo- millennial snoozes. Yes, that's right. That's yes. right. Um. Oh, Pontine. Hi, is that true? I never noticed that. Hang on a second. I'm looking to see. I'm, I'm approaching Frodo. Do I gain a point of dread? I don't think I gained a point of dread when I got near Frodo. Was there a dread? Close to him, you should. Yeah. I'm looking. I'm not. I don't think I did. Maybe I'm. Yes, you did. Oh, yes, I did. There it. There, there it went again. Okay, there it went again. Yeah, that's neat. So you do your 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 hope goes down and your dread goes up. All I do is get in the room, right? You come in the room with Frodo and and it shifts. Yeah, because here I am. I'm at max hope now. That's pretty clever. I'm undaunted, right? Hang on, and and I'm gonna get oh, slightly daunted now. That's right, (laughs) slightly daunted. Yeah, that that is why the screen flashed. When I came into the room, that was my my sense of dread coming in upon me as uh, I approached Frodo, who is you can't, of course, see the ring because it's under his clothing. That's just one of the cool things, one of the little tiny details the devs put in that just make this game so awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, this is clearly not the room. I mean, seriously, it's not like Gandalf was sitting there and smoking, right? This little, whatever this little hobbit settee is. And this is this is labeled Bilbo's room. So, you know, this is Bilbo's permanent room. That's true. I forgot it was Bilbo's room. Bilbo's this, permanent um, room, but still. This, this carpet is pretty cool. The one out here of the boat, of the ship, sailing, sailing. Oh, I never noticed the sailing carpet. Ow! I tried to trying to go around from the front, and I went out the door instead. Hang on. <laughs> okay, there it is. All right, this is the angle I was trying to get. Um, 
Huh, purple sails. That's very striking. Another purple motif, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that's... Oh, and there's that egret again. Yep. Um... This, this one in here, I, I've always assumed was Vingalot. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The one on the rug is presumably not. Right. Therefore, it would be something else, so I'm not quite sure what. And the moon. Just a plain old elfin ship, you know? Uh, that's right. Maybe. Maybe. Do we have any elves who primarily have purple as their signatory color? I don't think so. I don't recollect that. Tree and stars. Non-Numenorean stars. Look how weird those symmetrical stars look. Like those bisymmetrical stars. Mm-hmm. Eight points, just like a compass rose. I mean, after spending, you know, two years in Arnorian territory looking at Numenorian stars everywhere, um, you know, the seven-pointed stars, that looks strange. Now, the one with the tree next to it, what is that a mountain in the background? Um, looks like it. Yeah, exactly. As Trifle was saying, those are Fanorian stars. Yeah, exactly. Right, That's why they right. look so weird. Um, they're yeah. not Arnorian stars. Um which is interesting. So hang on. If those are Fanorian stars. We've got the moon. A ship. Fanorian stars. And eight Fanorian stars, right? Um, and nine stars around the tree. Yeah. And what mountain would that be in the background? Maybe that, that, be, that tree. That wouldn't be Numenor, tree. would it? No, and those are those are eight-pointed stars around the tree anyway. Those aren't Numenorean stars. Right. So would that be Valinor-ish? That, would that be Telperion, the white tree, the silver that's tree? What, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, I'm wondering. So that's why I was looking back at the ship and the moon. And I was like, okay, if the stars are meant to suggest this looks like a Fanorian banner. Fanorian mm -hmm. stars with the one big star and the seven other stars like Fanor and his seven sons. Right? So this banner looks like it could be a banner of the House of Fanor. Now, Boy, before Elrond has got to be one forgiving dude. 
if he puts a banner of the House of Fanor into his I house. I know, right? But then I mean, again, that just seems like, weird to me. You know, he did get awful close to Uncle Mythros and Uncle Maglor. Well, that's true. That's true. He did. Right? He did. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, but, uh, but 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 you're right. I mean, you're not wrong about the forgiving stuff. Yeah. Either. I mean, geez. it's still it's still a big deal. So, this leads me to wonder then if the other banners are cuz the ship could then not be Vingalot. This could be the banner of the Teleri. Oh, sure. So, we'd have the Fanorians, the Teleri, and then we have the moon. And we have the tree with nine stars around it and the mountain in the background, which could be Tenequitil. Now, keep in mind. That's uh, what I was thinking. Gondolin. Tenequitil. Right. It could oh. be maybe Gondolin. So, um, That's a good point. We... Uh, 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 um, who was it who posted that? Penloth was posting uh, Tolkien's designs for like the the sort of the like symbols, like sort of diamond shaped coats of arms of the different elf houses and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember, Penloth, um, Lotro does not have rights to any of that stuff, so they can't use the heraldry that Tolkien. I made bet for. Amazon does. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just <laughs> exactly. Come on, Lotro. All you've got, Standing Stone. All you got to do is pony up half a billion dollars. How hard is it? Come on. Chris. Chris was definitely having rights envy the other night. Oh we man, serious, <laughs> serious rights envy going on there. Yeah, yeah. But he did when that other Lord of the Rings MMO was announced, and the guy who is running the project is the guy who negotiated the rights for Peter Jackson for New Line. Yeah, but still, like you know. Come on, like you get access to unfinished tales, right? You know that's oh, like enough to boy. make a Lotro developer, you know, uh, you know, just go out for a round of stiff drinks. No um, kidding. But anyway, okay. So back to um, back to these banners. Uh, could it be the banner of Gilgalad? Yes. Ah, that's a good point, and that would Which make sense one? too, wouldn't it? Which one? Wouldn't be the Fanorian one, would it? The moon? The moon and stars? Frumius Bujum also does point out that uh, it's Bilbo's room, so the Fanorian banner could be Bilbo being cheeky rather than Euron <laughs> being forgiving. Um, That's true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so Penlod, you're suggesting that perhaps the moon and stars could be um, uh, could be the Gilgalad banner, possibly. I mean, it could be the banners of particular important elves. I was trying to think in the direction. So, I mean, so you could have like Gilgalad, um, uh, uh, Arendel, right, with uh, Vingalot right. there, uh, Feanor and the Feanorians over there, and like Turgon and Gondolin, maybe, potentially, what? might work with the other one. Um, so that the, um, could happen. The, the poem that Bilbo sings in the Hall of Fire, I wonder if these, I mean, because you were just saying about Arendelle. Right, right. I'm trying to think if these banners would have any significance to that song, because, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that Des would do. Yeah. Know, is tie them together, but I'm not, I'm not really making not really. connections. 
No, I mean, not that I can think of. And I'm thinking in particular with the nine stars. It's the nine stars yeah. I'm trying to yeah. I'm trying to work out. Again, I can do the Feanor and his seven sons. That makes sense to me for the Feanorian banner. Um, the tree with nine. If the tree could be associated with Gondolin conceivably, but... Um, yeah, I'm not sure. How about... Um, uh, Gosh, tuna. I was thinking. Um, yeah, Tyrion on tuna. Yeah. Tyrion, yeah. Well, and remember that Turgon did the thing with the gold and silver trees and Gondolin to recall the trees of Valinor. So the association there. But again, I'm not. I'm not sure. Gondolin. It doesn't feel like Gondolin because Gondolin wouldn't be a mountain. It would be a valley. And right. it, it doesn't look valley-ish enough. It's That's not. That's what I was like thinking about tuna because wasn't tuna a mountainous island? Yeah. T- no? Well, tuna. Uh, tuna is the is the hill upon which Tyrion is set. Right, it's Tyrion, um, yeah. Um, right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I would think if it was a Valinorian thing, you'd have two trees on the banner, not just one. Yeah, exactly. I would think so. I would think so, too. Um, so, so yeah, no, I don't think it's Gondolin. Um That's it, right? No other banners? Just these four banners in this room? Yeah, and I don't think there's any in, in the side room where the rest of the company are. No. Um, there's another, uh, the Fanorian banner again. It's, huh. I don't think... Elrond doesn't have any of these in his library, does he? I haven't ever really noticed. Me neither. Banners. Yeah. Um, I have to think about that. We can't see that... The mountain in the background... I don't think this is Tenequitil because it's too uneven. right? Tenequitil would be one mm. single peak yeah, that would be super sure. tall. And this is That's like true. a stubby series of peaks. If anything, yeah. well, I, am that's I why I was thinking. Is Numenor, that Thangarodrum in the background? Oh, you think three peaks? The three peaks of Thangarodrum. In which case, this would be Fingolfin's banner. Yeah, the white I tree about that. in the foreground with Thangarodrum in the background, obscuring Thangarodrum, right? With the nine stars around. Now. Somebody count, because I'm too tired to count. How many? uh, How many in the next generation? That is Fingolfin's children. Combine Fingolfin's children and Finarfin's children. Like those over whom Fingolfin ruled. How many... So what, like Fingon, Turgon, Arathel? How many total? Goadriel, Finrod, Ordreth, Ignor, Angrod. I've got eight. Yeah, in which version I know there's... Yeah, I got eight. Shoot. 
Interesting theory in uh, chat, in Twitch chat. Um, Deathman42 says, thinking it's Casa Doom and Lorien. Because if Celebrimbor has use of the Feanoring Stars, and there was, you know, friendship between the two uh, communities, that might It go could that way. be. It could be. Could be Celebrimbor. Why nine stars for Celebrimbor? It would make sense why they were Feanorian stars if it were Celebrimbor. Yeah, Hawthorne is right. Argon, right? There's Argon, sort of. That would be super duper obscure. Um, uh, it could be Moria, the three mountains of Moria in the background. Hmm. Hmm. I can't make sense of this for like for Celebrimbor though. Why nine for Celebrimbor? And why the tree if it's Moria? I mean again, well it wouldn't be Moria, it would be Moria in the background. So again that's why I'm thinking of Celebrimbor, right? Like it would be like Eregion. Right, it would be Holland. Um, that would bring us back to the individual people, right? So we'd have Kilbrimbor, Gilgalad, um, maybe Kierd in the ship, right? Maybe Arendel, and then there'd be Fanor, <laughs> I guess, or uh, some like memory of the Fanorians. Um, but yeah, Trifle, I agree. I'm not content with the, a white tree as a symbol of a Regian either. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't make much sense to me. Could it be Elros? But why the mountains in the background? I mean, that's not Numenor. I mean, it could be Numenor, but like, it could be anything. In that case, I mean, there's nothing to indicate Numenor. Because uh, see, it's not the Metal Tarma though. The Metal Tarma again. That would be one peak. If it's either the Metal Tarma or Tenequitil, it would be more unified and more peaky. Right? Less rangy. This is more rangy than peaky. So that's why I don't buy Tenequitil and I don't buy Mental Tarma. I could buy Moria and I can buy Thangarodrum. That looks like three peaks to me plus a little evidence of additional mountain range on either side. Um, but yeah, especially if you're going to use the mountain in a on a heraldic banner, right? You would certainly emphasize, emphasize the unified peak of the Metal Tarma or of uh, or of Tiniquitil. I could ask Chris, but I'm keen to guess. That's not as much fun as guessing. He might not remember either. <laughs> That's true. I bet you either he uh, or uh, or somebody would know. Yeah, somebody yeah. Would, would would remember. Uh, yeah, either Chris or Jeff would remember. Um, now looking more at the ship. Weird ship, though, right? So this is not a swan ship. Look at the masts. No, it's like, it you know, looks like it, the masts it's are growing out of like design more like a corsair, the kind of corsair ship we end up seeing when we get to Gondor. It does look, you know, that, that almost back more deck. Like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. High poop there on the back. And, yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, the the it's got what 
five masts? Masts, yeah. Five masts, and the first, f- the front four masts look like mushrooms growing out of the deck. <laughs> uh, well, actually, you know, technically speaking, they're all like jib type sails. You know, they're mm-hmm. like they're not. They look like they're not attached to mass. I, it's weird looking. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Trifle points out that Vingalot no can be crewed by four people, and there's no way that a ship with five masts could be crewed by four people. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Why is the moon so prominent? Well, in the I picture? don't know. I mean, I sailed a boat with three sails that two people did, so, you know, it depends on how you set it up. I guess. I defer to your superior to my my uh, sailor uh, knowledge sa- sailor sailor knowledge exactly um yeah i tend to think i tend to think teleri rather than numenorian but then again we don't have there's no s- swanness right in evidence yeah i don't right. get swan from this i um, like ponton's theory of because tap- this is a housing item uh it's called tapestry of the ship kings hmm and if we're thinking Corsarian, you know, so Corsair. Back to the Corsair yeah. thing. What about at a time when Umbar was under the control of Gondor? Well, I was going to say, weren't the Numenorians considered ship kings? Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. height of their sailing? Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, and Felon is remembering Aldarian's enormous ships, right, that he was building in Unfinished Tales. Um, Which is kind of cool that they would have like a. A tapestry, right? So it could mean any. I mean, in other words, they don't have to worry about c- infringing on rights, right. but they could still have the picture, right? Exactly. With no explanation, which is yeah. cool. So we get sea kings, moon and stars. This very Fanorian banner. I still say this is a weird one over here. I'm still trying to figure out this this gold one. Mm. The white tree is very Gondorian, but why the mm-hmm. nine stars? And what's up with the mountains? Okay. Well, I mean, that's why I keep thinking Numenor, you know, because, I mean, isn't that kind of where the tree motif came from in the beginning anyway? But, you know, so Tarma, for example. But I still don't I still don't think that would be it. Not in a, First of all, not in an elf house. Well, I guess maybe in an elf house. Yeah. I mean, oh, his by the brother, way, g- right? generic family-friendly name just pointed out a really obvious thing that we were overlooking. <laughs> the moon is in the sky above this ship. Ergo, it is not one of the Teleri ships. Ah. Which predate the moon. That's right. Absolutely. There's like the obvious evidence staring us right in the face there. So, um, you know, Numenor... They did stop making ships, did they? Well, I mean, presumably there are still ships over there if you were to go there today. But... Um, we don't see any of them after the moon rises, uh, because by the time the moon has risen, all the Teleri ships that we will ever see uh, until the uh, Vanyar ferried over for the, uh, you know, for the last for the for the War of Wrath, um, are uh, are burned. So, yeah, it, it it's it would be it would be an unusual thing. It would be just like let us imagine a Teleri ship sailing under the moon, like nobody here would ever have seen that. Like, nobody in Middle-earth would ever have seen that. Not even Elrond or any of them would have seen that. Um, Elrond would have, maybe from a distance, like the flotilla of the Teleri ferrying over the Vanyar for the War of Wrath. Uh, you know, he was a spectator at the War of Wrath, Elrond was. Um, but, uh, anyway. Um, 
But I had a... Well, so I'm thinking Numenor could be this other banner. I mean, Elros, after all, is right. Elrond's brother and first king, and, you know, it's a little nostalgia, maybe. Or... Final thought. Final thought. Isildur. Ah. White Tree, Gondor. Um, mountains of Mordor in the background, right? Like Minas Ithil set up. In a, but you you, you mm-hmm. got to think the moon would be involved if this were a silver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't still can't make any sense of the nine. Um, uh, I mean, okay, like nine ships of the Numenorians, you know, sailing from. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's like kind of a stretch, you know. So, um, yeah. I don't know. It's a mystery. All right. Well, um, we should. I could look at tapestries for hours forever. Yet, but uh, <laughs> I didn't even wait till we get to Rohan. <laughs> exactly. I didn't even bother to count the stars over here, which are. I say five years for Rohan. Five, nine, nine stars again nine around the moon. Nine. It's the yeah, moon and nine right. stars. One, What's two, up two. with the nine Fanorian stars? Are they all elvish banners? Anyway, like I said, I could talk about this all night long, um, but I probably shouldn't. Um, so uh, I'm, we should sign off for here and and uh, uh, and like uh, you know maybe fifth level Narnian will stay here, stand staring at the banners and building. Yeah, and in, for two, the in next two month. months when we make it to the Hall of Fire in the book, we'll go across the way to the Hall of Fire. Exactly. Yeah, gonna, we'll cross the hall. Exactly. Months. That's it. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, okay, very I, good. I love that name for a tabletop game, by the way. Which? That we, we called their tabletop game that's on Fridays, the Hall of Fire. Oh, the Hall of Fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. Cool. Yep, I agree. Okay, all right, so thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Thanks, we uh, good to come back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Should be back next week. Um, as far as I see, that should be fine. Um uh, so we will uh, uh, return next week. Next week is the week of uh, Sunshine Moot down in Orlando, but I won't be leaving until Thursday. So we'll be here on Tuesday night. So I'll see you guys next week. Which server are we on? I don't remember. Uh, it should be Krikalo because we're starting Krikalo? the cycle again. Yeah. Okay. All right. So thanks, everybody. See you guys next week. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.